This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. Subliminal jihad against the United States. is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Set? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will. But... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. But people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the truth back some of that boys to the and I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? Don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now, these people are in very high position, yeah. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 173. I'm your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today, as promised, we got a new little series uh, to yeah. get into, though yes. it's really not so little. Um, it's yeah. quite the opposite. I was saying before no. we started recording, you know, are you ready to record like the most copiously uh, researched SJ episode ever? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean... In There's, terms of sheer books, uh, yes. listed in the workflowy. I mean, I I've been going like on all cylinders, like you know, for this one. I, I mean, it's just a very like involving subject with like so many dimensions to it. Yeah, we just kind of like started from like let's you know look into like Ottoman Palestine, which is perhaps maybe broader than your average uh, SJ topic. <laughs> and I think, you know, certain extent, certain yeah. themes emerged for sure. But it's, yeah, there's a there's a lot there. And I'm, I'm excited to to get into into this. Yeah, this. yeah. I, I, I've referred to you going Bigfoot mode before, but I think you've gone positively dogman mode this time. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. No, you know, no holds barred. And it's fitting because it does feel like the world's about to end um, in a lot of yes. ways, like when Dogman stares at you. I so, mean, this is a little uh, bit different, I feel like, in terms of like just the literature on it and how deep a rabbit hole it is, because like mm-hmm. this is something that, as I think we'll see, like Bigfoot is something that only like a couple of like people who are uh, mostly very peripheral in society are obsessed with. And this is something that I think like the entire world and like the leaders of, you know, the people who are uh, making the decisions in the halls of power, like have been obsessed with for centuries at this point. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, um, no, it really is. I mean, in terms of, uh, yeah, this is not really like a niche subject that we're diving into. This is, uh, almost, uh, almost more than any other sort of acute regional issue, uh, has captivated the world's attention for, as we're going to find out, uh, much longer than a century, you know, and yeah, if you think about it, it's true. Like this, really. I mean, this does have to do with Jerusalem, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, it can you can think of this as something that there is. I think that we're gonna unpack in this episode, like some of the like religious and like sort of eschatological issues or like uh, around the the discourse of Jerusalem and how those sort of uh, 
uh, inflect uh, the situation in Palestine in uh, mm-hmm. our, our contemporary circumstances. Uh, but, you know, certainly yeah. those issues do exist. Um, so and they certainly have existed for a while. You know, there's a reason why, as we'll see, like the, uh, the discourse or the image of, of the crusade uh, still has so much power in the 19th century, which we'll be talking about now, like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. for people in Britain and in France, you know, uh, and that still, uh, that legacy still very much lingers. So, um, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in another sense, this is right on the bullseye of perfect SJ topics because I think, as, uh, as one book we we're reading kind of says, uh, paraphrasing one of the many Southern Baptist American boosters of Zionism, that uh, this whole regional conflict is really hinges on the sort of marriage between geopolitics and religion. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we talk a lot on this show about the overlap between like politics and religion. And uh, I think we just talked in our, in our episode about the unbinding about like how some academics sometimes can like separate something like a ritual spirit possession cult practice and like look at it as not religious somehow and mm-hmm. they put up walls to like divide all these different things and you know i think sometimes you can see that in sort of israel palestine uh discourse of wanting to make it like all about religion or all about geopolitics but i think that the truth of the matter is that these things are very intertwined in a very complex way and you really see like the rubber hit the road of uh the subliminal jihad broadly defined of people like weaponizing belief and historical narratives and you know ancient prophecies and things like that in order to affect material change in this region and transform it into something which of course then involves like the economic and political and everything else like the sort of hard materialist stuff uh that eventually does take shape and like transform the region of palestine you know over the last uh, century or so and I mean, I think this is a and all of that stuff, like the whole uh, the discourse itself of like the difference between like the material and belief and religion and uh, the the idea of the political itself. This context, like the Ottoman context and particularly like the Ottoman Arab context, is an amazing domain in which to like explore that issue because like in this sort of late Ottoman 19th century time and place uh, in, you know, uh, particularly in Palestine, you see like the uh, the concept of the political and the concept of the religion of the religious changing and transforming and taking shape like in a new way along with this discourse of uh you know modernity right and the uh sort of transformations that we'll they'll be tracking through this through this episode right like these categories like aren't fixed things like the notion of what politics is i almost feel like the way that like uh, the concept of religion functions in like the discourse you're talking about, the contemporary discourse of like that would separate politics from religion is almost as a way to like mask or disguise like, uh, you know, politics. Like I feel like everything, like almost everything is both, you know, like mm-hmm. I feel and the yeah. and this is kind of like one of these binaries, much like the East and West binary that inflects so much of this, that is like has a sort of a masking or, or a simplifying effect or reductive effect that ends up like disguising more than it reveals. 
Um, mm-hmm. and but I definitely think it's an, a, an incredibly yeah rich uh, topic that gets into w- the way that it uh, uh, illuminates these these categories and these problems that we dealt with before is that it like helps to show like the context in which those things are being defined you know mm-hmm. when they're being uh inscribed and when people are like contesting and negotiating them um and this you know yeah we'll we'll get we'll get into it um yeah yeah, yeah. and i i think that that complicated uh character is even you know very apparent if you look at zionism itself which is simultaneously a sort of messianic religious movement in mm-hmm. you know very explicit ways and also very loudly a project a project of kind of Western liberal modernity. And, yeah. and uh, as we will see, even though, you know, some people don't like hearing this term, colonialism. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, I think our, our other objective jumping into these episodes today is to sort of clear up some of, I think maybe the, the seed of even doing these episodes is clearing up some of the things that have been bandied about yeah. the last month and a half or so uh, it's certainly, you know, in terms of the debates around this conflict. Yes, this episode definitely comes from, I think, at least on my part, like the work I've done thus far comes from a place of like frustration with certain ideas that I've seen floated in the public sphere, like mainly on social media and in uh, places like that. For instance, you know, I was mentioning just before, like when we were talking about our concept for this episode, a certain person, uh, you know, who is also a podcaster who is aggressively promoted um, to, you know, young American leftists um, as an important voice who, uh, you know, and was certain people's best friends and, you know, everything, you know, recently suggesting that like there wasn't even a country until they gave it to the Jews, you know. Yes, uh, it wasn't even I think that's interesting because, yeah, like in a way, that's like one of these obfuscatory things where it's like, oh, well, was there? And then people, you know, start saying, well, there wasn't a place called Palestine. And it's much more com- speaking. It's much yeah. more complex than that because, first of all, like yes, there was. Um, like many, many people uh, use this term, like you know, it's a uh, to refer to this region. But oh, also, yeah, yeah. like we're talking about uh, the Ottoman Empire, right? Like this is not like in like you know the whole uh, idea of like structuring this based on provinces was like you know very and like of Palestine as being a province was like yeah. uh, you know some inconsistently applied and like Palestine uh, wasn't always uh, identified in that way and it was sometimes uh, you know classes being part of Syria. There's all sorts of like shifting sort of regional identifications of it. However, like there certainly was such a place and there certainly were was an idea of it and there certainly were people there um well you know it's like if we wanted to be super reductive we could say you know there's never such a country as belarus literally never never its own country but you know i feel like uh some of the same people saying this line about palestine would get pretty offended if yes. you uh, asserted that but you know I we're mean, trying to be particular and you know complex here we're not just trying to make sweeping assertions based on some i you know like what is this rule that like if you weren't literally like but, a sort of westphalian nation state like before exactly what, 1945 that you don't have the right to self-determination um that's yeah. not a very strong point to stand on but that's exactly like it it's like the countries like in a westphalian in a post-westphalian sense like was you know it was something that like the ottoman empire like approached somewhat stutteringly in terms of like adjusting to because like it wasn't relevant 
to the Ottoman context. It was an empire. In most cases. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just like um, how the Russian Empire had, you know, Poland wasn't a country for yeah. over a century because it was just part of the Russian Empire or Armenia or Ukraine or go down the list. Like, and I mean, for that matter, some of the people that were the, you know, the biggest proponents of early Zionism, like Germany, weren't even technically germany like back when they were promoting zionism <laughs> like yeah. you know what i mean like i mean it was still referred to in some of these books as prussia up through yeah. you know the mid 1800s and mm -hmm. i get it it's like you know they eventually combine and, and stuff like that but even a lot of european countries you know like italy had these like different city states for a long time and coalesced rather late in the game um into like what we consider the modern version of like that nation state, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, you know, that also had, you know, you had, uh, you know, you had Croatians, Hungarians, Romanians, like all kinds of people. And people didn't have their own like kind of ethnically contiguous like Westphalian nation state. So yeah, to judge Palestine by like those same standards, well, then you'd have to throw out like the self-determination of a lot of countries like i mean you could say that about all of africa right like it was it wasn't a country so like therefore what kingdoms. they don't yeah it's just yeah yeah uh or uh, probably uh, well they did they, they, prob they, they probably wouldn't concede even that um well they did want to give uganda to give uganda to the jews at one point too so or madagascar uh, don't speak as too well. soon um yeah but uh yeah but I think kind of as an icon of this, someone just yesterday, I forget who, let me shout out this person because this article really just like broke my mind and I felt instantly like I had to include it in this episode as like the, it was Don Rodigan from the Grotto posted this uh, tweet from uh, someone, uh, you know, uh, whose privacy, I think, because she mentioned that this person, you know, assaulted uh, her in, uh, you know, 2010. Uh, Daniel Pinchbeck is the name of the the assaulter, who I guess is like kind of a, like a psychedelic uh, evangelist of sorts, like literally. Um, He's in, pretty in big in those spaces. Wait, are we um, talking sexual assault? She just said assault. Okay. Assaulted right. me in 2010. So yeah, this guy, I mean, I guess he was on the Colbert Report at one time, at one point, you know, so he's oh, really, he's like you a know. pop philosopher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, correctly. he's been around. He wrote some book about uh, Quetzalcoatl talking to him while he was on a trip to the Amazon, I assume, <laughs> taking ayahuasca uh, Well, or there's something. Breaking yeah. Open the Head, a Psychedelic Journey into the Heart of Contemporary Shamanism, mm -hmm. and 20 12 the return of quetzalcoatl yeah. um, and notes from the edge times yeah, yeah so yeah. he's a really so, cool guy basically and you'll get a sense of this from this amazing uh substack piece that he wrote which i think just is a great epitome as like a jumping off point before we get into like you know the the deep history of uh this region like in mm -hmm. you know the ottoman period as a jumping off point i think just is kind of a, a guidestone to how incredibly like morally spiritually intellectually like bankrupt and confused like our discourse is but like uh, around this issue and like some of the themes that we'll see come up in this article i think you know will uh certainly resonate with her with our reading but anyway this just like uh disgusted me so much to read uh and just like i think sort of uh represented like everything that bothers me in the world like all the my least favorite things like being like a you know a fool who uh is basically a drug addict and mistakes like their uh you know addiction to psychedelics for enlightenment having you know this bizarre inability to anyway well 
I'm going to read it from mm-hmm. here. So he's responding to, I'm going to skip the first couple parts for the sake of time, but he's responding to uh, an article by uh, Sylvain Seipel, I guess, on the settlers movement in the West Bank. You know, he's sort of saying that uh, he, you know, summarizing the article, talking about, yeah, how uh, settlers are uh, fanatically insane and they want to basically ethnically cleanse all uh, Palestinians so that they can expand Israel's borders, even beyond like the, you know, uh, your standard, you know, borders of of Palestine, even Mm -hmm. even, you know, further into into the Arab world. But, uh, you know, Daniel Pinchbeck takes issue with uh, the idea that, you know, uh, Seipel says, his uh, answer is to dissolve the current Jewish ethno-nationalist model made government policy in 2018 with the nation-state law, which gives Jews alone the right to self-determination within Israel and supports the settlements, and in its place establish a truly democratic state where Palestinians and Jews have equal rights. He quotes a 2020 New York Times editorial from NYU professor Peter Baynard. The goal of equality is now more realistic than the goal of separation. However, this view is not widely shared. So this is Daniel Pinchbeck's res- Here's his his vision instead. He says, I agree with Seifel on the horrible conditions of the Palestinians and the moral abyss this creates for all for Israeli and all Jews. However, I don't imagine it is possible to dissolve Israel's ethno-nationalist state to create an alternative where power is equitably shared due to Islamic ideology and the increasing power of Jewish extremism, as well as the harsh realities of demographics and geography. It is also extremely difficult to envision a two-state solution at this point. The contradictions, so like, all right, so what then? Okay, the contradictions confronting Israel were threatening to tear the country apart even before October 7th. As Ari Shavit writes in My Promised Land, if the present status quo continues and Israel keeps ruling over millions of Palestinians who make up approximately half the population of the land, we face two equally dire choices. Either we grant them political rights and Israel ceases to be a Jewish state, or we continue to deny them these rights and Israel ceases to be a democracy. A status quo vis-a-vis our immediate neighbors menaces us from within, and an inner circle of 10 million Palestinians threatens Israel's very existence. I mean, the whole idea that Israel is currently like a democracy is like really a stretch. But in an interview with Ezra Klein, Palestinian author Ajmad Araki proposed a no state solution, which sounds intriguing, but almost also impossible to imagine from where we are now. It's so funny to hear him like foreclose certain possibilities based on like where this article ends up going. But <laughs> any, like, yeah. so blah, blah, blah. You know, the Israeli right wants it. So. This is his plan. Based on the writing I've been sharing here, I was invited to meet with a few influential members of the Jewish community who asked what I propose can be done to deal with the situation. The question surprised me. I wasn't trying to define an answer in such practical terms. I had to improvise. After a bit of reflection, this is what I came up with. Please let me know what you think in the comments. 1. Israel agrees to financially underwrite the building of a state-of-the-art, ecologically advanced, city of the future for the Palestinian refugees that is located in one of the neighboring Arab countries. Perhaps it is even in Gaza itself, which could be made part of Egypt or given its own nationhood. Recognizing the severity of accelerating climate change, this city would be designed as a concerted effort to explore best practices and apply cutting-edge regenerative permaculture techniques, plus renewable energy systems, to construct a model of survival for humanity's future. Accelerating warming threatens to make the Middle East and similar desert regions uninhabitable. Palestinians will be trained in permaculture and other practices. It gets like this is not even like this. That's reasonable compared to what follows Two, while maintaining itself as an ethno nationalist state with an assured Jewish majority. Israel would get would agree to give Palestinians the right to return to their ancestral lands for one month or perhaps several months a year setting up centers for this. 
Perhaps there is a sense that the stolen lands are understood to be permanently co-owned, cooperatively owned, <laughs> or leased from their original owners in some long-term way. 100 years? 1,000 years? Yeah. In return, I love this, like, the long-termism, like, bullshit. Anyway, in return, Palestinians agree... altruism at work. Yeah, that a, in return... Palestinians agree that a Jewish state has the right to exist, just as Palestinian populations were displaced, an equal or greater number of Middle Eastern and European Jews were also displaced and need a home. <laughs> okay, alright, we'll um, that part, but, uh, uh, Israel, is number three next? Yeah. Because number is, three yeah. is really... Uh, number, like, number three is where it starts to go insane. Like, well, it's already insane, but this is where, like, it really, yeah, I don't, yeah. like, is, this is where it becomes a psychedelic. Israel undertakes a large-scale initiative to use psychedelic and MDMA therapy to help both Orthodox Jews and fanatic Muslims escape the hypnosis of their entrenched ideologies. Psychedelic or MDMA-assisted psychotherapy is mandated as a treatment for anyone on either side who commits acts of violence or sabotage. Perhaps it is made available universally to help process the historical trauma felt by all sides. These treatments continue until a series of psychology tests reveal a shift to a pluralistic, or rather than parochial, worldview. So they probably continue forever until MDMA. everyone goes insane. Like, yeah, everyone Jam loses MDMA their mind. down your throat and until make you listen to infected mushroom for until, five days straight. It's funny how they called, like, people's own religious beliefs hypnosis when, like, they're literally they're talking about administering MDMA until they change their views. Like, that's brainwashing. Um, except the one world guy or religion with uh, side trans hymns uh yeah, yeah i guess like um, that really i mean we talked about that in sus psychedelics you know about like the interlocks between maps and uh israel and the ideas yes. and, and them using yeah like israel basically is like one of the first places where they got approval to do MDMA therapy and you know partnering with I think the former chief psychiatrist at the IDF and uh, also with individuals somebody found a clip of Rick Doblin talking on a podcast where he had been working with this like amazing Israeli guy who used to be in the IDF but he had really bad PTSD because he uh, killed like 50 Palestinians when he was in the IDF and he was like haunted by it and he went through like the MDMA trials and now he like owns a small business that like he co-runs with a Palestinian and like it's amazing. And Rick Doblin's obsessed with this shit. Like he's brought it up out of nowhere multiple times. I think yeah. he clocked it where he's like, you know, I really want to get to focus on this Israel-Palestine thing. And I guess maybe I would imagine it seems like Pinchbeck and uh, Doblin, though I'd have to double check. I assume they run probably in overlapping circles I would imagine in terms of psychedelic so. advocacy. I, yeah. And once yeah. again, here we go with like forcible MDMA there. Any, any Palestinian that gets picked up in a raid uh, has to have MDMA shoved down their throats um, until they give up their fanatical religion. I guess, you know, you read that article about that. I think on the show about that girl who was like, I've done enough MDMA to forgive Hitler. Yeah. Like it was a New York Times article <laughs> right, or something. Yeah, and it's like, it. yeah. this is like literally like, we're going to give you enough MDMA to like forgive Israel and like the <laughs> IDF for yeah. like what they're, for example, like what they're doing right now. Yes. Um, just give them ecstasy. And, and, and to the, it's funny that like, oh yeah. And the ortho, the, the militant Orthodox settlers, which so far it sounds like he's 
uh, his utopian peace plan is like giving them everything they want, like what they're going to allow like Palestinians to come into their territory for one month. Yeah, uh, that doesn't um, strike me as a thing. Israel is like, and do be down and go it. where and do like what? Be tourists, and do what? like and then just yeah, like like I guess because now they're like permaculture so experts. Owners. So I don't. Uh, yeah, I guess at that point they also uh, have, live in a city of the future with all this. Basically, it this seems really like all hinges on everybody getting like psyoped by force, doing ecstasy. Making them do it seems like sending them to like a, a like a woke force labor camp, basically, like where they're gonna like be do like be trained in quote unquote permaculture to help fight global like they're like a guinea pigs for like a green city. Like anyway, yeah. uh, well, you know, I mean, they have to adopt. They have to be bombed with MDMA until they adopt a pluralistic. Yeah, exactly. Literally, yeah. So never. This is what you get for attacking them. a peace festival. Yeah, they right. <laughs> This is this is the go aside. Tra- We've seen Israel's yeah. retribution. This is go aside trance's retribution, where they're bombing you with with MDMA. Love bomb. Um, they're love bombing. Yeah, but, uh, uh, but yeah, yeah. I think okay. it's well, so. I'm gonna skip. Four is just like you know, fund like front organizations like sus groups that like you know, uh, targeted funding of moderating influences among fundamentalist Christian, Islamic, and Orthodox Jewish fashions factions. This includes think tanks, platforms for ongoing open dialogue, and media outlets. All right, whatever. As if that's not. Ha- but anyway, five. This competes with three in terms of its its uh, derangement. As one element in this transition, we can satisfy a crucial element of biblical prophecy in a harmless and peaceful way through a holographic projection of the Third Temple of Solomon above the present Dome of the Rock. This is an al- <laughs> this is an alternative to physically removing the Al Aqsa Mosque, which would plunge that region and the world into catastrophe. The Bible specifies that the Third Temple should descend from heaven onto that spot and mentions the mentions of the temple, but doesn't state that this temple needs to be constructed out of stone or brick. Therefore, the Third Temple could be. Constructed out of light as a hologram an imaginal and technological projection of humanity's collective prayer so imagine you're going to friday prayers at (laughs) al-aqsa mosque and you have to enter like this giant glass cube filled with like rave smoke fog machines and like there's this giant hologram of like a triumphalist like third temple projected <laughs> like it's demented he's like he's he's offering like what if we do blue beam like a kind of overt blue beam you know to solve yeah. this problem and uh, everybody'll love it yeah i'm sure everybody would be satisfied with that but and also, oh, like, okay. this is also, like, assuming that, like, I think we're going to get into this, but the whole idea of this is, like, a crucial element of biblical prophecy that they the Jews must be restored to, like, even if you, like, accept that idea that the Jews must be restored to Israel, like, which is, like, we are going to unpack. But, like, even if, like, the whole association between, like, the biblical Israel and the state of Israel is, like, like so this is, like, uh, this is something that I feel like is emblematic where it's, like, what must happen like we can't get away from even the the German Templars who were like a major like colonial presence like in yeah. 19th century Palestine mm-hmm. had a better idea than this where they conceived the temple as like existing in like their hearts like that they were like the physical rep like you know their community was the temple you know like so very Protestant it, but yeah, yeah like well but I'm just it's saying, a little more like, workable if it's gonna be imagined like I mean it's still yeah. like you know obviously like these uh, groups were like the tip of a spear for like something horrible to happen so I'm not good but I still feel like 
why don't like if you really believe in that like why don't we just say like okay it, if it doesn't have to be made out of uh bricks and stone why can't it just be made out of your thoughts and your imagination like why, why can't, can't you it just be imagine the there's a temple there yeah exactly why can't it be the uh, metaverse you know yeah I why mean, don't you all go why don't you all take mdma and put some visors on but yeah anyway. it does reveal though again yeah. the uh the intersection i think is like one book you found like the relationship between technocracy and zionism like even yeah that the fulfillment of prophecy has this like cutting edge 3d kind of aspect to it that makes it like technologically in a way like superior and like next level and like designed by silicon valley like it, it which is so wrapped up in i mean and look one of the leading tech countries in the world in term you know they're very proud yeah, of this mm-hmm. in terms of tech innovation is israel so yeah you know they represent and i think we're, we're gonna get into this they represent so much like there's so, so much loaded symbolism in israel for westerners like who i think often project upon it their own feelings about quote unquote western civilization and its relation to the east and uh, yeah and it, it often produces weird shit like that where mm-hmm. and of course pinchback is like a wacky like 2012 pushing psychedelics weirdo but uh i i still think it it's notable that he's sort of combining like this determinism of like the the determinism of like millenarian dispensationalism with this kind of like tech solution you know yeah. that is supposed to like absolve all you know resolve all contradictions and just like make everybody happy uh if you like forcibly give them enough ecstasy uh to brainwash them uh into abandoning their religiosity <laughs> like I, like uh, yeah and the idea that like th- and this also this is also like a very orientalist thing and we'll definitely you know get into like this is what the topic of this episode really is like the heyday of orientalism you know like the what saeed called like high orientalism where yeah this idea of like the these people live in this fanatic haze and they're like not in the present you know they just like live in the misty past and uh mm-hmm. it's like the same thing where it's like, you know, only I'm rational. And this is like his sixth thing is he wants to support the dissemination of the philosophical paradigm of analytic idealism as a scientifically and philosophically coherent worldview that can, quote, break the spell of reductive materialism. Once generally understood and accepted, analytic idealism can help people from different religions overcome sectarian views to embrace a cooperative framework. I believe we need this paradigm shift to build a bridge between the religious, mystical slash esoteric and contemporary scientific slash secular worldview then he goes on about like you know blah 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 like analytic idealism slash like you know an or possibly pan psychism which is funny because like Mm. it's like okay so anyway the idea he i'll just you know read from the end here where you know to put a point on this he says like uh In future essays, I want to consider how the Israel war reflects the broader crisis of liberalism. The increasing global conflict we are seeing between flawed, corrupt, liberal democracies and horrific, unfree dictatorships and despotisms. And I'm wondering how does that like where what's which is which is Israel, the liberal democracy and the Palestinians in Gaza are a dictatorship and despotism like the but he so he says are we reaching the end of liberalism as an ideology and if so what comes after i want to reconsider the left perspective that sees america and the west to blame for wars across the middle east and elsewhere i think that's uh you know we'll uh we'll 
uh, can, we'll evaluate that view in this episode. We'll, we'll, we'll <laughs> yes, put that we uh, belief to the test. I also want to explore something I find bizarre. The power of ancient texts, the Bible and the Quran particularly, to continue to shape the ideology and behavior of billions of humans. I'm also open to other ideas in the comments. I am grateful to have such a thoughtful community of readers. I learn a great deal from what people share here. So... You know, he it's amazing how he finds it bizarre that people like believe in the Quran or, or in the Bible, but like it's uh, not bizarre to like anything. What, what he said is normal. What he mm-hmm. believes in is normal. But what I love about this is this like in the comments, you know, someone kind of takes him to task, like very politely, very nicely, just kind of pointing out like how it's deranged of you to, you know, support like uh, what's happening. Um, and then he replies, you know, uh, on the, the note that he just ended on. I appreciate your perspective. I p- dot 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 ellipsis. I posted an Israeli friend's response, another comment here. What's your solution model? But please read my friend's comment first on why a ceasefire is not possible. So, okay, so it's possible for everyone to abandon their religions and embrace, like, some bullshit thing that you made up on your blog uh, mm-hmm. in order to achieve world peace. It's possible for there to be, like, a floating blimp hologram, like, uh, of the, you know, it's possible for all this stuff. But a ceasefire is not possible. Well, you a have city to be of realistic. the future in, you know, yeah. like, in the middle of the Sinai Desert is possible where every Palestinian uh, receives like state of the art permaculture training is possible but and well, like a, a massive paradigm shift in everyone's consciousness uh, you know is possible but a ceasefire is not possible and that is like exactly the type of cognitive dissonance that uh, mm-hmm. really ain't nothing new as we often say it really uh, ain't truly ain't nothing new but yeah. speaking of idealism because i just wanted to check this because that term that he tossed in there analytic idealism uh sussed me out so much and i'm <laughs> like can i figure out whether this is sus in like 30 seconds of google searching and sure enough i did and the answer is yes it is um <laughs> so this guy this is mostly the brainchild of some uh i guess scientist slash philosopher named uh bernardo castrop mm-hmm. and who a pinchback just did an interview with uh i think in purple magazine that he posted about on his uh Substack. but i found another medium post uh it's partially kind of paywalled but just to give you a taste this is by uh somebody named paul austin murphy uh titled bernardo castrop the idealist cult leader who endlessly abuses <laughs> others <laughs> um nice. and so yeah, this guy says, you know, I normally don't go after philosophers, but I do it with Bernardo Castrop because he stridently preaches his religious idealism. So I'm giving Castrop a taste of his own medicine. He's ma- he's also managed to create a cult following around himself. Uh, what's more, Castrop's entire religious idealism is ultimately about Castrop. Again, the reason for my, as it were, personal attack on Castrop is that he doesn't do philosophy. He's a re- he is a religio-philosophical preacher who also happens to have a large cult following. See the quotes from his disciples and fans at the end of this essay. Thus, because uh, Castrop is a religio-philosophical cult leader, he rarely, sincerely, or genuinely debates with others and uh, reacts with ad hominems and abuse if anybody criticizes him, etc., etc. So it sounds like this guy's got some haters out there. And uh, basically, I mean, this interview that Pinchbeck just did is like completely pitching like this amazing you know, uh, ideology of like analytic idealism. I guess that this guy Castrop used to work at CERN. Um, oh. and 
according to Pinchbeck, is well-equipped to show how quantum physics meshes with the idealist model. Taking the debate between materialism and idealism to the next level, he proposes, based on the evidence that, quote, the seemingly objective world we live in is akin to a transpersonal dream. The tables, chairs, stars, and galaxies we perceive within it do not have an existence independent of our minds. If Castrop is correct, then the materialist hypothesis is obsolete. His work offers nothing less than a Copernican revolution, a complete overturning in how we think about ourselves and our world. Okay, first of all, uh, that sounds like Ayn Rand. Right, mm-hmm. like this sounds like objectivism, right? Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, it seems kind of like he. Yeah, also I don't like, know. Fuck you! Stop refuting materialism. Like you're trying to refute Marx. I see what you're doing. Fuck off. Like it's uh. Well, he seems to. You know, he wants to push a one world guy or religion and also refute quote unquote materialism at the same time. Uh, which sounds like he wants to create like a new religion uh, with himself. Maybe, uh, it the, certainly uh, seems like he is like at the very least a grifter. Uh, but yeah, like someone Pinchbeck just... is about it though. Um, yeah. By the way, Pinchbeck just have to note comes from kind of a uh, a an interesting lineage. Uh, he is the son of Joyce Johnson, who was a prominent beat writer who once dated Jack Kerouac. And was really good friends with uh, William Burroughs and that indefatigable Zionist for drugs, Allen Ginsberg, in the 1940s. Hmm. Um, and I think she went on to publish some novels and things like that. So he's sort of like an alt culture, like beat generation uh, Nepo baby in a way, um, which kind of exp- it gives me some context for why he's sort of like this. I don't know what his relationship with zionism is i mean he is jewish but of course you know many jews in the diaspora are Mm -hmm. not fans uh of zionism but it sounds like he low-key you know is pretty okay with it uh with some slight mdma fueled modifications and holograms that this isn't going to keep him up at night uh or torture his conscience too much so yeah yeah very uh and he, Very in cool. fact, like feels it incredibly necessary that like Israel remains like in its current ethno-nationalist like state. You know, even though he acknowledges that that was made explicit only like in 2018, that can't be changed. <laughs> like that can't. No, it's you too know, late. like ugh. yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. So, so I mean, it's so I maybe it. You know, this is a uh, uh, going through that uh, <laughs> that list of hot takes is you know a, a, a way of getting to the question of how did we get here. Yes. With, and I think we'll uh, see I think we'll see the theme of uh people who have no idea what they're talking about or at least uh their idea of what they're talking about is like entirely based on like their own like little obsessions and self-interested like motivations like trying to like help like help people. We'll see as like, you know, uh who like just can't help themselves. We'll see mm-hmm. as like a very prominent way of framing all a lot of the actions uh that took yeah. place uh on the geopolitical scale in palestine uh over the last like 200 years yeah um, and it, yeah. in a way it truly ain't nothing new because a lot of people have been projecting their <laughs> own vision of this place you know palestine the holy land for quite a long time, you know, uh, mm. so in, you know, maybe not with a literal projector, but people have certainly <laughs> been projecting and that's like part of the fixation 
on this region and why so many outsiders have you know paid so much attention to sort of having control over it but oftentimes it like you said it's like very divorced from uh, the facts on the ground and has way more to do with their desires and like presuppositions for kind of remaking the world and their image and then the region of palestine becomes you know uh, molded into the puzzle piece that sort of unlocks everything and thus uh, partially explains why it's been the hub of so much intrigue over the last several hundred years you know not just since like Yeah, so I think, you know, we've taken, uh, obviously there's thousands of years of history in this region, um, but we've sort of taken as a jumping off point uh, pretty much kind of the beginning of the 19th century um, to sort of uh, map our way to the present. And uh, you have some, right, some historical sort of tent poles to uh, establish before we venture in. I like definitely want to like mark some certain dates, but I wanted to. I think this might be a good place to like kind of start, like in a theoretical way, as like to get into the Ottoman period in Palestine. 
Sure. Uh, it's an article by uh, Bashara B. Dumani called uh, Rediscovering Ottoman Palestine, Writing Palestinians into History. You know, I'll just uh, read from some of this. A critical evaluation of historical works on Palestine and the Palestinians during the Ottoman period is a vast and varied topic. This essay does not attempt a comprehensive overview, nor does it provide an outline for such a project. Rather, it seeks to initiate a debate by making a number of tentative arguments in response to the following questions. What are the underlying ideological assumptions and historical contingencies that have determined the contours of inquiry into the modern history of Palestine and the Palestinians? And what are the necessary first steps toward constructing an alternative history? In dealing with the first part of this question, I argue that the seemingly irreconcilable traditions of historical literature on Palestine, Zionist versus Arab nationalist, Orientalist versus Islamicist, actually operate within a single discourse. While each camp reaches opposite conclusions and passionately promotes its own particular set of historical villains and heroes, they share similar assumptions about the Ottoman period, tend to have a narrow view of what constitutes history, follow similar periodization, and generally agree in their definition of active forces of change. Consequently, our knowledge of Palestinian history is highly uneven, and the intersecting points of research presented was an almost surreal portrait. On the one hand, thousands of books and articles have focused high-powered beams on particular periods, subjects, and themes deemed worthy of study. On the other hand, entire centuries, whole social groups, and a wide range of fundamental issues remain obscured by dark shadows. For example, many Israeli, Arab, and Western historians have long argued that the Ottoman period, particularly from the 17th to early 19th centuries, was one of decline and stagnation until the coming of the West and the promulgation of Ottoman reforms from above. They posit such a sharp historical break between the, quote, traditional and, quote, modern periods that continuity is denied and the past becomes strangely irrelevant. Even Islamicists who speak of the golden age and of Islam, I don't know why she's saying Islamicists and not like Islamists, because Islamists are you know, people who study Islam. But anyway, um, even Islamists. Alex Jones said. Uh, yeah, always, Islamicists. Yeah. The Islamicists. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess I'm, not, I'm sure it has been used that way, but it's, I mean, here is an example, but it's a little bit weird. Speak of the golden age of Islamic jurisprudence under Ottoman rule, agree that the old world was shattered and that the modern history of Palestine began with the arrival of external elements, whether in the shape of Napoleon in 1798 the modernized Egyptians of Muhammad Ali in 1831, or the first wave of European Jewish settlers in 1882. It should not come as a surprise, therefore, that there is not a single English-language monograph on 17th-century Palestine, and only two on the 18th century. Similar generalizations can be made about the kind of history written. Despite the growing number of social and economic histories, the focus, and uh, by and large, has been on political events, personalities, and administrative structures. The latter are crucial areas of investigation, but in the paucity of bottom, uh, the but in the paucity of bottom-up as opposed to top-down studies, the native population has tended to be excluded from the historical narrative. The major lacuna in the historiography of Palestine during the Ottoman period is the absence of a live portrait of the Palestinian people, especially the historically silent majority of peasants, workers, artisans, women, merchants, and Bedouin. The second part of the above question deals with the construction of an alternative history. No doubt there is an urgent need to write the Palestinians into history, especially in light of the ongoing intifada, which has aptly demonstrated the collective power of ordinary people to precipitate changes of historic proportions. Furthermore, understanding key issues in 20th century Palestinian history, such as nationalism and class relations, necessitates a detailed investigation of the social, economic, and cultural changes in Palestinian society during the Ottoman era, particularly the so-called quote-unquote dark ages of the middle period. In addition, local sources that bring the voices of the Palestinians themselves to the fore, Ottoman court records, private family papers, and oral history, deserve greater attention from scholars than they have hitherto received. 
Just as important as casting a wide net of research interests, however, is a need for a reconsideration of the way that history is theorized. Rediscovering the underlying connections between past and present and erasing the artificial lines between external dynamics and internal rhythms of change make it imperative to deconstruct the assumptions of modernization theory, heir of 19th century Orientalism, the dominant paradigm informing most works in the history of Palestine, and to formulate an alternative approach. The paucity of theoretical works in the field of Middle East history, the dearth of comparative studies, and the fact that the field of new Ottoman history is still in its early, though very vigorous, stages, make the task of outlining a new theoretical model for understanding the transformations in Palestine during the early modern and modern periods a precarious one. This essay aims only at raising a number of questions that might focus debate and point to potentially fruitful lines of inquiry. So uh, I just want to read this very this first part of the, the inquiry itself. Um, on uh, the biblical rediscovery of Palestine in the 19th century, because I think this will get into some of the stuff that uh, we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. Over the last hundred years, both Zionists and Palestinian nationalists have embarked on a process of historical rediscovery of Palestine's past, a task fueled by an intense and unrelenting political drama. Projecting current nationalist feelings and aspirations backwards, both sought to create a nation through a historical nationalist charter. But before embarking on a detailed consideration of the Palestinian-slash-Arab nationalist and Zionist historiography of Ottoman Palestine and the terms of reference they share, a brief word must be said about another process of discovery which is a stage for both, the European biblical discovery of Palestine. For Europeans, the 19th century was a discovery century par excellence, for it witnessed the extension of primarily British and French economic, political, and cultural hegemony over the non-industrialized world. Yet the inhabitants of quote-unquote other societies rarely occupied a central place in the consciousness of, 19th, of, the, of 19th century European historians, whose narratives instead were dominated by tales of brave conquests and enlightened rule by white Christian males. Natives, black, brown, and yellow, were portrayed either as resistors to the forces of progress or romanticized as pristine remnants of a passing traditional society. The case of Palestine follows this basic trend, but its image in the eyes of 19th century European historians was further complicated by this country's unique religious-slash-symbolic significance to the West as the home of Judaism, the birthplace of Christianity, and the heartland of the Crusader adventure. Small in size and of exceptional economic potential, the dominant image of Palestine was that of the quote-unquote Holy Land, waiting to be reclaimed both spiritually and physically. Pilgrims, businessmen, government representatives, and tourists all landed on its shores in increasing numbers, but often with a single fervent wish in their hearts to traverse an unchanged landscape where biblical journeys could be endlessly reenacted. The combination of these factors resulted in a voluminous but highly skewed output of historical literature. More was written on this small region than any other in the Middle East with the exception of Egypt, yet the focus was extremely selective and the gaps glaring. One example is chronology. A graph of 19th century books on Palestine according to the periods they cover would show two rather conspicuous spikes perching over the biblical and crusader periods. These were the eras deemed most significant because they were most directly linked to European history. The intervening and following centuries, mostly characterized by Arab-slash-Muslim rule, were largely ignored despite the fact that it was precisely during these centuries that the basic structures of contemporary Palestinian society, economy, and culture were forged. I just want to note that that is, like, a key point, and well, I think we'll go deeper into this issue, but, like, you ever notice how there's this idea uh, that we'll talk about, I think, a bit more, but, like, that there, you know, there wasn't even a country, that, that there weren't even, there was no society, there were no people, that it was a, an empty desert. Because, yep. like, in their minds, that's what they, it was and what they wanted it to be, you know, or in this, in the uh, p minds of the people who created this image, you know, mm -hmm. that was what they, like, you know, wanted. That's what they wanted to, you know, they wanted to see this biblical, like, nothing had happened. There was nothing there. 
Like it just jumps yeah. directly from like biblical times to their colonization. There's um, a powerful disincentive to want to focus on that period, lest it complicate that yes. narrative. Of and uh, basically, yeah, like very few people there, kind of just empty, ready for the taking to be remade. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and she actually notes this explicitly. The amazing ability to discover the land without discovering the people dovetailed neatly with early Zionist visions. In the minds of many Europeans, especially Zionist Jews, Palestine was, quote unquote, empty before the arrival of the first wave of Jewish settlers in 1881 to 84. Emptiness, of course, did not denote, except for the most ignorant, physical absence of the native population. Rather, it meant the absence of civilized people, in the same sense that America, the Americas and Africa were portrayed as virgin territories ready for waves of pioneers. The famous yeah. Zionist slogan, a land without a people, for a people without a land, was therefore Ooh. but a manifestation of a wider European intellectual network characterized by chauvinistic nationalism, racial superiority, and imperialistic ambitions. The political implications of the deep-rooted unwillingness to deal openly with the question of the native population were such that the fundamental political rights of the Palestinian people, not to mention their very existence, are still a matter of contention even today. Of course, the indigenous inhabitants were not entirely invisible. They regularly appeared in 19th century photographs and postcards as decorations and icons of ancient times. The shepherd tending his flock, the woman drawing water from a well, the peasant plowing his field. They also filled a variety of roles, often exotic stereotypes of the Orient, the pompous pasha, the harem girl, the devious merchant, in traveler books in the popular press. Most importantly, perhaps, Palestinians were the subject of ethnographic studies on peasant society, custom, and religion. More often than not, these valuable studies aim not so much at investigating Palestinian society as it actually was, but rather at documenting an unchanging traditional society before its anticipated extinction due to contact with the West. The image of European-inspired progress against a bland backdrop of Ottoman-slash-Islamic decline, combined with the very real discontinuities caused by the sharp intrusion of the Zionist movement and British occupation to obfuscate the crucial connections between Palestine's Ottoman past and its present. The burden for historical transformation was placed on outside forces, thus creating the crude dichotomies that informed, until recently, much of the literature on Ottoman Palestine, traditional-slash-modern, internal-slash-external, and passive-slash-active. So, yeah. Yeah, that's some fire right there. Yes. Um, and I feel like this has come up every time like the Ottoman Empire has been mentioned in any one of our episodes. It does strike me that we learn, I think I learned a little bit about it in like my freshman year world history class in high school. That might have been maybe, I, I hate to say it, but like because it was after 9-11, my teacher <laughs> felt like, oh, let's spend more time talking about the Middle East or something uh -huh. like that. But in general, you don't hear a lot in the West about the Ottoman Empire, despite it being in existence up to, you know, World War One. Um, yeah, it's like it, it's talked about in this, and then you know when you start to look in just the history of the 19th century. I mean, it ruled uh, Palestine for 400 years. You know. Yeah, like, it seems relevant uh, to talk about. Yeah, and I think that maybe one of the reasons why. Uh, it doesn't get brought up as much is because once you get into the history of like the the latter decades of like you know the final decades of the ottoman empire there's so much mostly like european intrigue going on with uh kind of like vultures circling you know their the dying prey or something like that yeah like plotting on though also you know some of the sources like 
I was looking at, you know, also emphasized that the policy of many of the European powers in the 19th century was not, was to actually prevent any breaking up of the Ottoman Empire. Yes. Because of kind of the unpredictability that that would sort of unleash. And also, I think, I would assume, because they didn't want to deal with like a bunch of different nationalisms kind of bubbling up. Uh, and, you know, well, the they biggest concern, this. Like this, yeah, I mean, I think that that is part of it. Like what would replace it? And like the biggest concern was that, and this is kind of part of this whole thing that is a huge issue in the period that we'll be discussing called uh, the Eastern question, Mm -hmm. which is just like basically like what do we do about the audit? Like how do we like basically like get rid of the Ottoman Empire without like ruining like, you know, without like fucking up our colonial possessions like too much, you know? Um, Yeah. Like delicate dance. The issue there basically was Russia uh, in a lot of uh, in the minds of the French and the English, like a lot of the time, uh, because the idea was that, well, if the Ottoman Empire isn't there, then Russia, you know, this is like the whole great game thing. Like Russia will have like, you know, they'll just swoop in and they were like Russia throughout this period we're talking about was constantly fighting with the Ottomans. You know, you have like the, the Crimean War uh you have yeah you yeah know, the another thing war. that like never gets talked about and i was actually i kept running into things that i'm like oh shit damn like i i think i studied the great game a little bit in college but it was in one class but it was only kind of in the central asian context and so you know because it was outside of the purview of that i guess like i had no idea that palestine was such a focal point of the great game in the 19th century between Britain and Tsarist Russia. And, you know, there were all these designs basically on, you know, people in Russia wanting to uh, eventually take back Constantinople, you know, reestablish Constantinople, and also the desire uh, to have a Mediterranean seaport that -hmm. they could use. And also the religious significance for the Eastern Orthodox Christians as well. I think that, the annual Easter pilgrimage of Russian Orthodox, you know, believers to Palestine was like one of the biggest pilgrimages into the region yeah. every year. Mm-hmm. And then there were economic considerations that followed from that about who controlled like the steamship lines that would mm-hmm. transport the Russians. And so like the Russians wanted to make sure they would like make all the money off of that. So there were all these like kind of things playing out like on the Russian and in the British and the French, of course, had this great anxiety about, which is why they backed the Ottomans uh, in the Crimean War, correct? Um, yes, they were their allies, but it's yeah. funny because when they actually like settled uh, like the treaties, like the treaties like were, a lot of them were around like the Treaty of Paris. Um, they were like, basically like punishing the ottoman empire like they were kind of like asking for concessions from the ottomans like more Mm. than from the russians i mean maybe i don't know more from the russians but certainly like they were like you need to like reform you need to like reform that was like a big emphasis right like that they wanted they to like uh encourage the ottoman empire to i guess it, it kind of varied what they wanted their what shape form they wanted their reforms to take a lot of it had to do with like the rights of minorities but i think oh, yeah. generally it was like that's a whole like issue like the wedge issue of like the 
for like European support for my for you know minorities in the Ottoman Empire and the way that changes like the whole landscape like both in the Arab domains like and elsewhere yeah it's incredibly like complex and a huge part of this um but you know just in general like a kind of policy of like centralization and Europeanization and this is like you know the Ottomans for their part like uh they uh, certainly like uh, there's an interesting book um, that uh, called a, uh, or there's an article uh, called uh, Ottoman Orientalism by Osama Amakdisi. Uh, and he talks about how uh, the Ottomans uh, took on this kind of colonial perspective that was a little bit different from uh, the way they had seen things before. They definitely saw, you know, the uh, non-Muslim subjects of the Ottoman Empire as being, you know, uh, like different, right? And having like an unbridgeable mm-hmm. gap from, you know, the Sultan and uh, from uh, the Ottoman elites. But mm-hmm. uh, it was a, a different relationship where uh, they pivoted under uh, kind of a, a desire to get out of this this feeling of being the sick man of, of Europe, right? It's a similar yeah. thing that you could see like parallel things like in Russia and, and in Japan where they're like, we need to, you know, modernize. We need to, you know, catch up with Europe. We need to get out of this, you know, uh, this way that we're, we're seen. And uh, we need to, especially after like humiliating defeats uh, to, at the hands of Russia, they uh, were eager to uh like uh, transform their country and this is kind of the impetus mm-hmm. behind the, the tanzimat and all of that stuff so yeah uh, that's the, re- the the reform period is yeah. the tanzimat right yeah yeah that and that first began like in 1838 but the or like you know was it was initiated like uh during that time yeah so this is like a massive program like of trying to kind of like centralize but also and the form this took especially after the young turk revolution was uh like a turkification uh, that ultimately like interacted with all these other things in a way that was uh, very explosive in many many mm-hmm. respects. So to kind of like create like a narrative here before like going before even uh, getting into those uh, periods, thought it would be uh, interesting to start a little bit actually before like Napoleon's uh, uh, conquest of Egypt and Syria. That's usually seen as like the sort of inflection point. Off point yeah the inflection point of like you know edward saeed talked about it in orientalism as like this key moment in the kind of the birth of this new relation between the quote-unquote west and the quote-unquote east right or the Ossetia and the orient but uh i did i uh, feel i actually I, before you jump into that i feel like just to because Just to like make things clear, if I can just read a very brief normie Wikipedia description of the region of Palestine, just (laughs) so people understand, like we're going to do a speed run of basically like several thousand years in like a minute. And just so there's like no confusion about from the ancient time, like so that nobody's disoriented when we open in like, you know, 1798 as to like what this region is i mean get out a map and look at it you know if you're if you don't know what region this is but basically in a nutshell and again this is from i i read i read this before it doesn't this little intro doesn't feel like charged necessarily or like you know loaded or inaccurate but Mm -hmm. it says that the first written records referring to palestine emerged in the 12th century bce 20th dynasty of egypt which used the term peliset for the neighboring people or land in the 8th century BCE, the Assyrians referred to the, reg- referred to the region as Palashtu or Pilistu. In the Hellenistic period, these names were carried over into Greek, appearing in the histories of Herodotus as Palestine. 
In 6 CE, the Roman Empire established a province over the area known as Judea, then in 132 CE, the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt, formed it into Syria, Palestina. In 390, during the Byzantine period, the region was split into the provinces of Palestina Prima, Palestina Secunda, and Palestina Tertia, 1-2-3, following the Muslim conquest of the Levant in the 630s. The military district of June Philistine was established. While Palestine's boundaries have changed throughout history, it has generally comprised the southern portion of regions such as Syria or the Levant. Um, it also conceptually overlaps with several forms of Judeo-Christian tradition, including Canaan, the Promised Land, the Land of Israel, and the Holy Land. In the 7th century, Palestine was conquered by the Rashidun Caliphate, ending Byzantine rule in the region. Rashidun rule was succeeded by the Umayyad Caliphate, the Abbasid mm-hmm. Caliphate, and the Fatimid Caliphate. Following the collapse of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which had been established through the Crusades, the population of Palestine became predominantly Muslim. In the 13th century, it became part of the Mamluk Sultanate, and after 1516, part of the Ottoman Empire. So that's where the Ottoman rule starts, 1516. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so then, uh, yeah, we're talking about three, almost 300 years after uh, of Ottoman rule, we enter into where we start. And at this point, yes, predominantly Muslim. I think there were census figures uh, given in one of these books from... Yeah, I, think I think it was the like the 1830s. Palestine. Yeah, I think it was from the, I think they have 1870s census figures, I think. Okay, uh, so this there. is before be the wrong. first waves of, of yeah. European Jewish migration. And uh, I don't have the numbers up, but roughly speaking, I would say that uh, there, one thing that surprised me was the size of the Arab Christian population. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in certain parts of the country, in places like Nazareth or whatever, they were like the majority, but uh, they're definitely like the second largest group. The Muslims are probably a, a majority, uh, a comfortable majority, and the Jewish population, which had always there had always been Jewish communities over that that almost two thousand year period. But I think in the eighteen seventies, it was estimated around four percent of the population, um, mm-hmm. mostly concentrated in Jerusalem. I think what Tiberius and like a few other cities, um, mm-hmm. yeah, and so Kadev, the, Tiberius, yeah, yeah. So there was a presence, but I, I think it's just like worth noting that we're talking about four percent of the population uh, before the Zionist movement yeah. and European uh, penetration of the Palestinian region, like really, really kicks off. And I think it also is worth noting. I mean, you found a lot of things about life in Ottoman Palestine that I didn't necessarily get to read, but mm-hmm. my general impression from things I have read is that, you know, under Ottoman rule, people generally, I would say, you know, maybe not in all cases, uh, got along between, like, the three major religions um, there. Well, like, did they get along? Well, like, get I mean, along, varies, but I mean... But it in certainly wasn't of, like... Uh, it's not like this... Uh, yeah, this is an important point because it's not like, you know... I mean, you see, this is another thing that you see now like in the contemporary discourse. It's like, well, you know, if there's not two states, then the Muslims will kill all the Jews. Because as we know, yeah. Muslims would just kill any Jew, you know, yes. or any Christian. You know, Muslims hate, like, whereas, like, you know, historically speaking, the Ottoman Empire at the time, everyone acknowledged that it was like, it certainly was 
uh, had a reputation for being tolerant, right? That was where Jews tended to go to escape Europe, right? And Generally speaking, and like, more tolerant than most European states uh, yes, in that in those centuries. Absolutely, right? there were certainly like I mean, there's uh, it, in terms of this issue, uh, there's a book by uh, Bruce Masters, I think, that talks about like uh, Christians and Jews in the uh, Ottoman Arab world. And he has a good passage of it. Sorry, there's just so many notes for this. Okay, here it is. The court records taken together from various Arab cities give us a relatively positive picture of intercommunal relations in the 17th and 18th centuries. Although we must remember the, uh, the caution that non-Muslims may have been reluctant to bring charges in cases involving physical attacks against them. Non-Muslims and Muslims often live in the same quarters, but almost every Arab city also had quarters which were becoming almost exclusively non-Muslim over the course of the Ottoman centuries. Such residential clustering was necessitated for Jews by the Talmudic injunction they live within a limited walking distance from their synagogues and in many cities only one existed. The emergence of predominantly Christian quarters, however, supports the hypothesis of a psychological distancing between the different religious communities that led them to cluster together residentially with their co-religionists, even when the law did not require it. Well, I mean, I feel like that's not really like, again, like there's sort of like, okay, well, that's kind of something I feel like is pretty common that people like, but anyway, that people kind of self-segregate yeah. based on their religion. It's not really like a sign of, anyway, but but even those neighborhoods that were overwhelmingly populated by either Jews or Christians often housed a few Muslim families, as was the case of the predominantly Christian quarter of Babtuma in Damascus or the Jewish quarter of uh, Basita in Aleppo. Muslims and non-Muslims worked together in many of the trade guilds and went as a collective unit to voice guild concerns before the court. Although the names of Muslims were always listed first in such a deposition. So this is kind of the type of thing that did exist, you know, like, uh, but again, like we're talking about the 17th and 18th centuries. Like, so the, like, this is the kind of yeah. thing where it's like, oh, you know, like, yeah, compared to like, I don't know, like the expectations that we have for like equality and like religious freedom and secularity, like now, but like, yeah. you know, but if there were any Muslim in a guild, the head sheikh was invariably a Muslim, even if the membership were overwhelmingly non-Muslim, as in the case of the guilds of silk weavers in Aleppo and Damascus. In many such guilds, however, the sheikh's second-in-command was a non-Muslim. Not all the trades were integrated, but religiously segregated guilds consisting only of Muslims usually involved low-prestige jobs such as tanners or porters, the membership of which was typically of tribal origin. There were also some trades that were exclusively Jewish and or Christian, for example, kashrut butchers, uh, physicians and goldsmiths in most cities, and the Sanusi Armenian bakers in Aleppo. By and large, however, the court records demonstrate that the workplaces and markets of Ottoman Arab cities were well integrated with the casual mixing of persons following different religious traditions. The court records also suggest there was a large degree of assimilation into Islamic legal practices by Arabic-speaking non-Muslims in the Ottoman period. Non-Muslims could only report to the Muslim courts if all concerned parties agreed to Muslim adjudication. Otherwise, Muslim judges were to return the cases to the appropriate religious authorities in the minority community in accordance with the Pact of Umar. <laughs> Uh, That's is, right. You know, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I just uh, want to say I was just reading some books about like the Balkans and specifically mm -hmm. about like the regions of the Balkans that were under Ottoman rule. And mm -hmm. that was an interesting thing that I like I hadn't been aware of before is that they actually like appointed every religion almost had their own like Sharia court or like Christian court or something like that that yeah. would judge the crimes of their own people. And I guess only if everybody agreed to it, like would a non-Muslim be charged in like yes. the Muslim court so that there was a certain amount of like self-governing and like self-law enforcement that was permitted and legalized like under the Ottoman system yeah. for, you know, Christians and Jews and other non-Muslims, even though Muslims definitely enjoyed like certain kind of legal like privileges that mm -hmm. the non-Muslims didn't. But, you know, yeah, for like, 
for like the 15 1600s you're like okay like that's that's really not that bad like you know i mean um, like, compared to what con- was going on like, if yeah, we're trying to Europe. judge the ottomans it's like um, compared to europe that's like real, where they were uh doing a witch genocide and also like slaughtering tons of jews but, in yeah. the uh, inquisition like well you know but I mean? in fact like that is exactly it's like that that is exactly what like was the thing that was like causing like it, it's that's what like, is causing them to be backward like you know compared to europe or you know i don't want to make like too big of a claim here but i think it's certainly a factor was that it was incredibly decentralized and like yes. there wasn't yeah. there wasn't like this sort of uh class of like inc- like that's the thing that once the you know after in during the time of world war ii like armenians were over the course of the the history of the Ottoman Empire, Armenians were an incredibly powerful group. You know, mm-hmm. they had, were highly placed in the government. In the later years, like they started to be less prominent, but they were also they were always known as like you know this is the the, the in the Ottoman uh, era this is known as like the millet system was like what was the sort of different. Yeah. I might not be pronouncing these Turkish words correctly, but uh, you know I, people will know what I mean. I always uh, wondered about millet. Like yeah, it, I think it's millet. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was reading about millet. Yeah. I assume it's written with a T because like you know I don't I don't know if they have Tom Marbuta. I really want to learn sure Turkish, but I don't speak it. But anyway, so. Uh, yeah, like they, the Armenians were known like the, no, the loyal millet and everything. But like once there is all this like incredible pressure to and desire, you know, I don't want to fall into the trap of like saying it's just like external pressure, you know, because obviously there was this internal desire as well uh, on the part of like to become like a modern state. This went hand in hand with this idea that many Arabs perceived as like, quote unquote, Turkification, where there was this uh, ethnic suprem- Turkish ethnic supremacism that became like very like pronounced uh, and very like aggressive. Right. Part of centralizing was the uh, what it ended up manifesting. There was a lot of hope for the Young Turk Revolution at first among all sorts of people, especially minorities. But as it manifested and yeah. like this, this goal to sort of modernize, you know, uh, and to move away from what had been before, like it ended up uh, taking this, this kind of uh, hard ethnic line, especially once World War Two began. Uh, sorry, not World War Two. World War well, One began. Meant, yeah, you meant yeah, World yeah. War One, right? Yeah, especially yeah, yeah. once World War One began, and mm-hmm. then, and this is all like you know, not to say that there wasn't like uh, in the late Hamidian period. Like I don't want to do what a lot of Muslims do and do this kind of like apologetics for uh, uh, Abdul Hamid. But uh, certainly it was the Young Turks, uh, despite being this uh, supposedly sort of like liberatory uh, force of uh, equality, which a lot of people had had hopes for. They were the ones who mm-hmm. ultimately escalated this issue and decided that due to like. The, and then did a genocide. Yeah. They against did it, the like, Armenians. Like, yes. They were the ones. I think that's a really important distinction to make is that it was like the sort of like liberal, modern, like reformer you know the young turk like chank Uyghurs heroes like yeah the cool guys that everyone's gonna name songs after and it's just gonna become a stupid phrase yeah. everyone says like it and like sleazy hollywood actors will call themselves it like but they were kind of like almost in a way i mean almost analogous in a way to like the european hopes for like Zionist settlement in Palestine that like uh-huh. they're gonna bring and the in fact they were blah, like blah, blah. pretty it, good friends like with Zionists actually like you know they they got along with them uh, pretty well um, and yeah. and so it's like an interesting wrinkle in this whole narrative that like the West kind of likes to tell itself is that oh they were just like living backwards and the Ottomans is so brutal they're probably bad like blah 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 but it's like no no like actually there happened to be um, a much more you could argue like fair treatment and 
kind of equality between different ethnic groups like before you pulled the pin on that grenade called like modern nationalism and then that drive to like reform you know and, and you know like I think there were a lot of probably complicated pressures like prevailing upon I actually I don't know enough about the specific about like Ataturk's revolution to say like mm-hmm you know like did it start out super turkish ethno-nationalist or is that like something it gradually embraced the young turk movement itself like not Mm -hmm. necessarily well it kind of started out with like everything you know we're gonna make people like we're gonna get rid of the stuff that like was described in that passage where like muslims have this kind of assumed superiority like we're gonna extend equal rights and like you're not gonna be subjects anymore everyone's gonna be an ottoman citizen but in mm-hmm. this kind of transformation, it, the secularity of it wasn't like as clear, but there certainly was a transformation of what Islam meant. And it got kind of blended with like a kind of, yeah, like a, a, a an Ottoman identity, an Ottoman, Ottomanized idea of Islam that ended up kind of, yeah, having, uh, uh, manifesting, especially after like the, uh, in, in 1909, it ended up manifesting as, you know, kind of this, yeah, like Turkish uh, chauvinism. Yeah, so their relationship with uh, Zionist shifted. And certainly it's there's an amazing story, actually. And this has to deal with like the uh, Hamidian massacres uh, that happened earlier, right? Because there were like escalating tensions. And what the reason for this was because there was a perception, not to say that this justifies them, right? But like, and they were incredibly paranoid and innocent people who weren't like dissidents or revolutionaries in any way, like were killed in these massacres and certainly in the Armenian genocide. But like the, like in the mind of uh, the people who committed these uh, atrocities and in the minds of like, you know, the, uh, like Abdul Hamid at, at various points, like these like were a potential fifth column because it is true that European powers were cultivating these minorities, like basically as a way to it, like it break up the Ottoman, you know, like uh, it's truly like, another ain't that new situation. I thought that was like, a little bit, maybe more of like a well, I guess not with like colonialism in like say Africa or like even in North America where they were like pitting you know native tribes against each other all the time. Like that's you know, but I think seeing it uh, the prominence of it in the 19th century of like kind of making a big thing out of like protecting a certain minority for like very cynical reasons to like undermine a rival power basically like you see it all the time today it's like a very classic sort of trick to pull and i mean i feel like almost every country at this point might be prone to engage in it but particularly like western powers often use this as like i mean nowadays often cloaked in like humanitarian terms but obviously very selectively like not applying to palestine right now but uh to other places yes i think during the cold war you saw that with like ethnic hungarians and like hungary like they're you know the the u.s was very like all about like fostering their grievances against like Ceausescu, you know things like mm-hmm. that but this is you know a tried and true pra- kind of imperial practice yes um, and this is a uh, you know a, a great example of of that like dynamic right so like uh this is a an art from an article called uh, the placard affair and the ankara trial the hinchak party h-n-c-h AK and the Hamidian regime in central Anatolia, 1892 to 93. This is kind of going afield from uh, Palestinian context. However, this does kind of illuminate like the paranoia around minorities and like the context for it at like, uh, and it really, you know, 
uh, puts a, it really makes it very clear. On the morning of 6 January 1883, residents of major towns and villages in central, uh, sorry, to 1893, 6 January, January 6th, the original January 6th, uh, 1893, <laughs> residents of major towns and villages in the central Anatolian provinces of Sivas and Ankara in the Ottoman Empire woke up to find copies of two separate placards affixed to the walls and doors of mosques, government buildings, and notable residential buildings. One of the placards was addressed to Ottomans writ large. It claimed that the reign of Sultan Abul Hamid II, who had soiled the sacred throne of Osman and rendered the religion of Islam detestable, was about to come to an end, and that the moment of vengeance had arrived. The short text ended with the message that foreign intervention was imminent to deliver the empire and its subjects from tyranny and was signed by the Committee of the Patriots of Islam. The other placard was written in a more cryptic tone and claimed that uh, the renowned Indian remedy, a veiled reference to the British colonial administration in India, was about to be administered to the people of Turkey by the doctor who has great celebrity in its usage. As a result, the people, with the assistance of this doctor and his medicine, will be cured and will drive out those oppressors and uh, triants. Uh, as written. Uh, the uh. second placard was signed by the Indians who seek the salvation of the people of Islam. So when, you know, the uh, news of the publication of, of the mysterious placards was immediately forwarded to the Sublime Port and uh, Yildiz Palace in Istanbul. Shortly thereafter, provincial authorities in the region were able to determine the placards had been published, distributed, and affixed by members of and sympathizers to the Hinchak party. I really hope, not, like, but I don't imagine how I would, uh, I should have looked it up, but, you know, there might be a bunch of things in this episode like that. The Hinchak party, as part of a general campaign to rouse Muslim public opinion against the state and set the basis for British intervention. Within a matter of weeks, the affair turned into a crisis that extended far beyond the issue of dissemination of seditious posters and placards with mass arrests of Armenians. The alleged involvement of two professors from Anatolia College in Merzafon, an educational institution administered by Protestant missionaries, drew the attention and interference of British diplomats. The investigation, the wave of arrest, and the subsequent trial of suspected revolutionaries in Ankara in June 1893 became events of local, imperial, and international significance. So, you know, the literature on the early history of Armenian revolutionary parties focuses on a number of their crucial features, including their ideological development and evolution, their connection with and participation in radical oppositional politics in the Russian Empire, and the organizational connections with other important actors at the turn of the 20th century. Works on Hamidian policy towards Ottoman Armenians examine the mass wave of anti-Armenian massacres and pogroms in 1895 to 1896. The geographical focus of the study seeks to address the lacuna in both literatures on local dynamics and their relationship with larger structures by foregrounding the placard affair in the subsequent trial. So, yeah, like the, uh, the history of the affair is subsumed under a greater narrative of centuries of Armenian Muslim coexistence under Ottoman rule that was terminated by Armenian acts of, quote, betrayal and Ottoman concerns of self-preservation. Uh, Preservation uh, in uh, the Turkish uh, literature on the on the topic, and the only monograph on the subject that's that's the uh, that's the um, the spin on it. Uh, he says so. Yeah, but like that, you know, that was definitely the perception that there was like this. But the the cause for the paranoia were these links that uh, existed. You know, obviously, like these mass arrests of people who uh, you know were probably innocent, and certainly the massacres that followed were not justified. Yeah, but However, there was British but, intrigue yeah. going on. Is what you're saying? And well, Protestant intrigue. They were deliberately invoking like foreign intervention. You know, like really, like the like Russia was the big concern with like the Armenian minority, like or the big sort of uh, sure. you know fear. But they like these placards like were 
sort of like playing into that anxiety around the intervention and like maybe the hope like for some like they wanted to set the basis for like British intervention right they wanted to basically like say like this is you know about to happen they like you know this this whole line of like the Indian remedy is about to be administered to Turkey um and like you can see how like at this time you know where the like all these like defeats had already happened right like the uh russo-turkish war in the 1870s mm-hmm. this is right like a couple uh like like 10 years or so before the young turk revolution like ended the sultanate so like this is like a time of like great like a feeling of great weakness and like threat and yeah. you know uh, again doesn't justify anything however there certainly was like a huge anxiety that like it was going to be picked apart through british intervention which was what the British intended to do, basically. You know, they just mm-hmm. wanted to do it, like, in a managed way. So you're right. Like, yeah. throughout the history of the 19th century, it definitely was a policy to keep the Ottoman Empire around. Go but ahead. while also penetrating it. And yes. uh, I, I was surprised to, like, the the level of kind of self-awareness of a lot of these different groups, whether it's, you know, uh, government officials and diplomats or missionaries and things like that, talking about, I think, the uh, the Catholics that were engaged in this referred to it as a peaceful crusade that you know basically like we are going to use institutions of culture and religion and education and all of these things to penetrate the region of palestine and like regions of the ottoman empire that we want to like kind of get our claws into and eventually some of them had very far-reaching kind of utopian aspirations for Mm -hmm. what this eventually would achieve like for a lot of the protestants you know i think they i almost get the sense that they felt a little bit left out of all the major abrahamic religions that like they're the only ones that didn't really have like shrines or like you know a big cathedral like the catholics the orthodox they did and the muslims and even the jews and like Mm -hmm. but then so there was a lot of funding going into like building like cathedrals in jerusalem that were like protestant Mm -hmm. and then schools and hospitals and things like that but they all i think the one book uh was it palestine and transformation um yeah alexander schulsch uh palestine and transformation he talks about how most of the european powers were aware that nobody could kind of outright make a play for a region, you know, like Palestine or Syria or something, and just try to straight up like take it through force because of the sort of unpredictable consequences and also the looming threat of like if you destabilize it, like Russia might take advantage of it, things like that. So it was like we're going to have to operate on the level of soft power. And uh, I mean, we might get into this later, but it is interesting how this like great power rivalry in the 19th century i i notice a lot of similarities to the kind of geopolitics of like the cold war and i have to think that i don't know people like brzezinski or like these mm-hmm. like mid 20th century like european strategic thinkers they had to have probably in their assessment of like how to like tango with like the soviet union they had to have probably referred back to like the great game and yeah you know, uh, like the rivalry, like how to deal with the Ottomans and with the Russians and things like that, and how to use like soft power mechanisms to like undermine your rival when you can't, like in this case, because of nuclear weapons, like you can't just attack them outright. So you have to like find ways to like penetrate the like the soft underbelly and like exploit minority, you know, dissent and like all these other, you know, established like education, art, culture you know all that kind of Mm -hmm. shit and also like your economic penetration which uh 
is another thing like that does rapidly kind of develop in the 19th century in Palestine. And it's like generally like really just like inextricably interwoven with a lot of the, the religious missionary type work, like the bringing sort of like modern development to Palestine and like, you know, making the desert bloom, basically. Like, mm. I, I don't think they use that term yet. They had a different term for it, which I'm forgetting. But that type of thing is like intertwined with bringing Christianity, Christian dominion back to like, yeah. or bringing the Jews back. And in the case of like early, early European Zionism, there was this idea that they would all convert to Christianity first and then yeah. go back. And then other people were like, well, they're definitely they'll convert when like once they go back and then people realize they eventually kind of drop that over the decades yeah it just got "Eh." kind of like it was this weird thing where like it started out like yeah the conversion would be expected and then like suddenly there was this thing where it's like oh wait they're not going to convert to christianity and they just yeah they just basically dropped it and this whole like biblical like fervor just became like secularized in a way into just this Mm -hmm. fanatical support for israel without any like real like wait a minute like the whole point of this is is now like over not to say that like you know yeah that is justifications shifted and it's like oh well they're the they were appointed kind of the custodians of the holy land so that's why they deserve to go back like people found a lot of scriptural interpretations that kind of or you know the prophecy of isaiah you know it said one day they're gonna they're gonna go back you know things Things of that nature, like it, it shifted with like geopolitical necessities because they needed sort of a vanguard to to actually go there. And another of the many things I wasn't fully aware of was like how many Christian groups, like the German Templars that you mentioned, attempted yeah. to sort of establish like colonies like earlier mm-hmm. in the nineteenth century uh, before the Zionists started showing up, and in most cases, like not as successfully but they were kind of the first attempt and the zionists like learned a lot from their mistakes to sort of build off of we'll return to that in a little bit but mm-hmm. maybe yeah. maybe we should wind back now because uh to uh yeah, well napoleon uh, well, i did you know, i did want to mention actually before we get into napoleon i did okay. want to mention uh zahir uh uh here i think is probably uh his name uh but i will check to make sure but uh, Dahir uh, al-Umar, yeah, uh, al-Zaidani, uh, who was, he's kind of like seen as like a Palestinian like national hero these days, according to Wikipedia mm-hmm. anyway. But I read a book uh, on him by uh, Judah is the, the last name. Uh, it's just called uh, the Revolt and Arab Revolt in Palestine in, in the 18th century. And uh, he talks about how uh, this was actually uh, his activities in Palestine, how he kind of established like an independent territory in the Galilee was really like kind of the beginning of foreign intervention in Ottoman Syria. I'll just read like a little bit from his prologue. So I think this is kind of an interesting like point of history here. Uh, Zahir al-Umar al-Zaidani was born in Palestine circa 1690 into a small Bedouin clan. He began his career as a tax farmer. That was like a very, you know, lucrative thing uh, to be a tax farmer. Is that um, like a tax collector? No, it's like someone who works like a, a farm. Uh, it's called a iltizam. It's like they're sold by the government to wealthy notables, and then they get like five times the amount they paid by taxing the peasants uh, and extracting the agricultural production. So that's you know how it worked basically. Um, gotcha. And yeah, eventually, yeah, I guess it was abolished by Muhammad Ali during uh, his 
uh, revolt in Egypt, uh, but I'm we'll not sure if it returned afterwards. Yeah, we'll talk about him. But anyway, so yeah, uh, he started as a tax farmer. So he was like, you know, kind of a, a, a definitely one of the elites. And because again, these like sort of it was very decentralized, right? And this is mm-hmm. like how he was able to basically take over because like, uh, and in fact, he kind of like technically was like r- ruling by the largesse of the sultan, but you know, it was yeah, like they, yeah. they definitely didn't really want him, but. Uh, so he there's a lot of that in the Balkans too, like where yeah. there's like nominally under, but they're really doing their own thing. They're like powerful families just sort of running their own shit, and yeah, yeah, and like I think yeah, a lot of the violence that came like in the 20th century in the Ottoman Empire like had to do with like an attempt to like kind of stop that, like and just really gain control over this incredibly like uh like a heterogeneous and large territory so he began his career as a tax farmer in uh, 1706 in the galilee and extended his territories from seda in the north to gaza in the south uh and from the mediterranean in the west to the jordan river in the east oh no in the heyday mm-hmm. of his pa- wow he was going to control from the river to the sea yeah um but oddly enough even though uh he actually like apparently like, a lot of minorities like uh, actually moved into uh, Palestine under his rule because uh, he was uh, uh, sort of supportive of them. Um, in the heyday of his power, uh, Sheikh Zahir concluded an alliance with Ali Bey of Egypt in defiance of the Sultan. Together, they defeated Ottoman troops, occupied the strongest provincial capital, Damascus, in June 1771, and forced its governor to flee the city. Both Dahir and Ali Bey took advantage of the presence of the Russian fleet in the Mediterranean, whose interest was to foment troubles inside the Ottoman provinces. Thus, for the first time, Ottoman Syria became internationally involved in what is often known as the Eastern Question. But wow, once, I ain't yeah. nothing new. Yeah, the whole idea of like the like oh like uh, what do we do about it? like the, the eastern the eastern question is like so obnoxious. But anyway, like uh, yeah. but once the Treaty of Kuchuk uh, Kainarka in July 1774 ended the Russo-Turkish War, the port successfully destroyed Zahir and his movement in August 1775. Uh, several moments besides Zahir ch- challenged the Sultan's authority, but his was different. He was a local Arab who worked outside rather than within the channels of the establishment. Zahir was the first Arab ruler in the modern history of the Middle East to bring a new dimension into the political arena of the Fertile Crescent, foreign intervention. In 1772, the Russian fleet first bombarded Jaffa, Saida, and Beirut on behalf of their allies, Zahir and Ali Bey. Upon Zahir's request, they occupied Beirut for five months in 1773. From there on, Syria became the field of European intervention in the local affairs of the Ottoman Empire, an intervention that has continued in the Middle East until the present time. Wow. So, yeah. So 1770, uh, almost 1776. Yeah, before America even again. existed, this story, wow. you know, begins. Uh, okay. Or for the United States, rather. Um, yes. But, yes. But, uh, so I think that's interesting because, like, again, yeah, Napoleon is often seen as a jumping off point. But I think that's an interesting thing. I would like to go deeper into his life. Like, another concept for this episode would have been a just, like, we talking have about a, this we guy. have a movie coming out. Yeah. So we can, you know, it might be... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Is there a, a movie about Napoleon. him coming out? Oh yeah, with Ridley Scott, Joaquin Phoenix. I think it's. Oh, a movie about out. Napoleon. Oh, I was oh, talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. the no. hero I was like, really? Like, I was oh, excited. Okay, I was okay, like, Ridley mind. Scott's <laughs> making a movie about this guy. Like, um, no, uh, uh, yeah. did he make Kingdom of Heaven, which is kind of about the Crusades? Uh, I yes, I believe actually. so. I actually have Salah never seen Dean. Kingdom of Heaven. Yes, yeah, me neither. Yeah. Uh, I that you uh, came out during the War on Terror era. Like, yeah, interesting. But I remember it like. My vague impression of it is that it wasn't. I'd really have to watch it, but that yeah. it, it it was kind of like everyone's hardcore, but also like epic, and like <laughs> it, it wasn't just like all oh, the Muslims are bad, but it might yeah. have been. I don't know. I had to I check know. it out, but uh, but okay. So 
So there yeah. is this like kind of great unrest in like the Ottoman regions in like the late 1700s, right? There was like a fair this, amount of unrest that and happened. The Russians right? get a little yeah. bit involved. Mm-hmm. There was a fair amount of 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 unrest, uh, like at various points. Like you know, it wasn't always like uh, everyone was, but. That's the thing, like a lot of the time they were kind of like, not in this case, but like in many cases, you know, they were sort of riding for like some, uh, you know, they weren't trying to end Ottoman uh, suzerainty. They wanted Mm -hmm. to, you know, elicit some kind of concessions or something or it was some other purpose. But yeah, certainly it wasn't just like, you know, wouldn't want to create the impression this is like a complete paradise but also wouldn't want to use that impression to justify what uh happened subsequently and napoleon's invasion wasn't justified like in a humanitarian way in the way that you would see like in some uh other you know interventions or sort of more as you said like exercises of soft power like and that's why i think saeed highlighted it was because it had to do with uh he he kind of framed it as like a scientific exploration (laughs) like he was going there (laughs) to like learn all about egypt and you know he brought like a bunch of savants with him you know okay, scholars Crowley. yeah basically. when was the what what year did he invade uh 1798 and okay. well egypt 1798 and then he moved into syria in 1799 um right yeah okay. uh you know i mean like i assume like our uh listeners might be familiar with like this you know really classic book which we may even critique as being like a little bit dated, like a little bit tr- like a little bit trite in some ways at this point. But it might be worth like, you know, reading a little bit from uh, this book, which, you know, it's a classic for a reason, you know, and he is a Palestinian. So, you know, might as well give him a little bit of play. Right. Who is this you're talking uh, about? Edward Said. Although, oh, okay, Said, yeah, yeah, he writes about this access to Indian riches had always uh, to uh, had always to be made by first crossing the Islamic provinces and by withstanding the dangerous effect of Islam as a system of quasi Aryan belief. And at least for the larger segment of the 18th century, Britain and France were successful. The Ottoman Empire had long since settled into uh, for a for Europe comfortable senescence to be inscribed in the 19th century as, quote, the Eastern question. Britain and France fought each other in India between 1744 and 1748 and again between 1756 and 1763 until, in 1769, the British emerged in a practical economic and political control of the subcontinent. What was more inevitable than that Napoleon should choose to harass Britain's Oriental Empire by first intercepting its Islamic thoroughway, Egypt. Sorry, it's throughway. Although it was almost immediately preceded by at least two major Orientalist projects, Napoleon's invasion of Egypt in 1798 and his foray into Syria have had by far the greater consequence for the modern history of Orientalism. Before Napoleon, only two efforts, both by scholars, had been made to invade the Orient by stripping it of its veils and also by going beyond the comparative shelter of the biblical Orient. The first was by Abraham uh, Hyacinth, uh, Antiquil du Perron, uh, 1731 to 1805, uh, an eccentric theoretician of egalitarianism, a man who managed in his head to reconcile Jansenism with Orthodox Catholicism and Brahminism, and who traveled to Asia in order to prove the actual primitive existence of a chosen people and of biblical genealogies. Instead, wow. he overshot his early goal and traveled as far east as Surat, there to find a cache of Avestan texts, and there to complete his translation of the Avesta. Raymond Schwab has said of the mysterious Avestan fragment that set Antikil off on his voyages that whereas the scholars looked at the famous fragment of Oxford and then returned to their studies, uh, Enkiltil looked and then went to India. 
Schwab also remarks that Anquetil and Voltaire, though temperamentally and ideologically at hopeless odds with each other, had similar interests in the Orient and the Bible, the one to make the Bible more indisputable, the other to make it more unbelievable. Ironically, Anquetil's Avesta translation serves Voltaire's purposes, since Anquetil's discoveries soon led to criticism of the very biblical texts, which had hitherto been considered to be revealed texts. The net effect of Anquetil's exposition is well described by Schwab. You know, he goes on about uh, this weird guy, you know, and how he revealed the Orient to Europe for the first time. But yeah, then he uh, starts to, to discuss uh, Napoleon's invasion. I'll uh, get to this uh, part here. Uh, scrolling, scrolling. Sorry. Just keep this in. Just keep this in. <laughs> okay. So, yes, I'm just skipping ahead here uh, in that part because there's a bunch of stuff about, like, the pre-Napoleonic projects like uh, William Jones and that guy Antikil who is going on about. But, yeah, so he writes, Many English Orientalists in India were, like William Jones, legal scholars, or else, interestingly enough, they were medical men with strong missionary leanings. So far as one can tell, most of them were imbued with the dual purpose of investigating, quote, the sciences and arts of Asia with the hope of facilitating ameliorations there and of advancing knowledge and improving the arts at home. So the common Orientalist goal was stated in the centenary volume of the Royal Asiatic Society, founded in 1823 by Henry Thomas Colebrook. In their dealings with the modern Orientals, the early professional Orientalists, like Jones, had only two roles to fulfill. Yet we cannot today fault them for strictures placed in their humanity by the official Occidental character of their presence in the Orient. They were either judges or they were doctors. Even Edgar Quinet, writing more metaphysically than realistically, was dimly aware of this therapeutic relationship. Les à les prophètes, he said in Les Génants des Régions, les Europe à les docteurs. That is, uh, Asia, uh, you know, has prophets and Europe has doctors. Proper uh-huh. knowledge of the Orient proceeded from a thorough study of the classical texts and only after that uh, to an application of those texts to the modern Orient. Faced with the obvious decrepitude and political impotence of the modern Oriental, the European Orientalist found his his duty to rescue some portion of a lost past classical Oriental grandeur in order to facilitate ameliorations in the present Orient. What the European took from a classical Oriental past was a vision and thousands of facts and artifacts, which only he could employ to the best advantage. To the modern Oriental, he gave facilitation and amelioration, and to the benefit of his judgment as to what was best for the modern Orient. It was characteristic of oral Orientalist projects before Napoleon's that very little could be done in advance of the project to prepare for its success. And Ketil and Jones, for example, learned what they did about the Orient only after they got there. They were confronting, as it were, the whole Orient, and only after a while and after considerable improvising could they whittle it down to a smaller province. Napoleon, on the other hand, wanted nothing less than to take the whole of Egypt, and his advanced preparations were of unparalleled magnitude and thoroughness. Even so, these preparations were almost fanatically schematic and, if I may use the word, textual, which are features that will bear some analysis here. Three things above all else seem to have been in Napoleon's mind as he righted himself while in Italy in 1790, sorry, 1797 for his next military move. First, aside from the still-threatening power of England, his military successes that had culminated in the Treaty of Campo Formio left him no other place to turn for additional glory than the East. Moreover, Talleyrand had recently added... <laughs> Animadverted, okay, that's weird. Uh, animadverted on les avantages à retirer des colonies nouveaux dans les uh, circonstances présentes. And this notion, along with the appealing prospect of hurting Britain, drew him eastwards. 
Secondly, Napoleon had been attracted to the Orient since his adolescence. His youthful manuscripts, for example, contain a summary made of uh, Marigny's Histoire des Arabes, and it is evident from all of his writing and conversation that he was steeped, as uh, Jean Thierry has put it, in the memories and glories that were attached to Alexander's Orient generally and to Egypt in particular. Thus, the idea of reconquering Egypt as a new Alexander proposed itself to him, allied with the additional benefit of acquiring a new Islamic colony at England's expense. Thirdly, Napoleon considered Egypt a likely project precisely because he knew it tactically, strategically, historically, and, not to be underestimated, textually, that is, something uh, one read about and knew through the writings of recent as well as classical European authorities. The point in all this is that for Napoleon, Egypt was a project that acquired reality in his mind and later in his preparations for its conquest through the experiences that belong to the realm of ideas and myths culled from texts, not empirical reality. His plans for Egypt, therefore, became the first in a long series of, uh, of European encounters with the Orient in which the Orientalist special expertise was put directly to functional colonial use. For at the crucial instant when an Orientalist had to decide whether his loyalties and sympathies lay with the Orient or with the conquering West, he always chose the latter, from Napoleon's time on. As for the Emperor himself, he saw the Orient only as it had been encoded first by classical texts and then by Orientalist experts, whose vision, based on classical texts, seemed a useful substitute for any actual encounter with the real Orient. Napoleon's enlistment with several, of several dozen savants for his European expedition is too well known to require detail here. His idea was to build a sort of living archive for the expedition in the form of studies conducted on all topics by members of the Institut d'Egypte, which he founded. What is perhaps less well known is Napoleon's prior reliance on the work of Comte de Volnay, a French traveler whose Voyage en Egypte et Syrie appeared in two volumes in 1787. Aside from a short personal preface informing the reader that the sudden acquisition of some money, his inheritance, made it possible for him to take the trip east in 1783, Volney's voyage is almost, oppressively, uh, almost an impressively impersonal document. Volney evidently saw himself as a scientist, whose job was always to record the état of something he saw, uh, the state of something he saw. <laughs> the climax of the voyage occurs in the second volume, an account of Islam as a religion. Volney's views were canonically hostile to Islam as a religion and as a system of political institutions. Nevertheless, Napoleon found this work in Volney's Consideration sur la guerre actuelle des Turcs, uh, 1788, of particular importance. For Volney... Uh, after all, was a canny Frenchman, and like Chateaubriand and Lamartin, a quarter century after him, he eyed the Near Orient as a likely place for the realization of French colonial ambition. What Napoleon profited from in Volney was the enumeration and ascending order of difficulty of the obstacles to be faced in the Orient by any French expeditionary force. Napoleon refers explicitly to Volney as reflections on the exped Egyptian expedition, uh, the Campagnes d'Egypte et de Syrie, which he dictated to the General Bertrand on St. Helena. Volney, he said, considered that there were three barriers to French hegemony in the Orient and that any French force would therefore have to fight three wars, one against England, the second against the Ottoman port, and a third, the most difficult, against the Muslims. Volney's assessment was both shrewd and hard to fault, since it was clear to Napoleon, as it would be to anyone who read Volney, that his voyage and the considerations were effective texts to be used by any European wishing to win in the Orient. In other words, Volney's work constituted a handbook for attenuating the human shock a European might feel as he directly experienced the Orient. Read the book seems to have been Volney's thesis, and far from being disoriented by the Orient, you will compel it to you. Napoleon took Volney almost literally, but in a characteristically subtle way. 
From the first moment that the army d'Egypte appeared on the Egyptian horizon, every effort was made to convince the Muslims that nous sommes les vrais musulmans, as Bonaparte's proclamation of July 2nd, 1798, put it to the people of Alexandria. Equipped with a team of Orientalists and sitting on board a flagship called the Orient, Napoleon used Egyptian enmity towards the Mamluks and appeals uh, to the revolutionary idea of equal opportunity for all to wage a uniquely benign and selective war against Islam. What more than anything uh, impressed the first Arab chronicler of the expedition, Abdul Rahman al-Jabarti, was Napoleon's use of scholars to manage his contact with the natives, that and the impact of watching a modern European intellectual establishment at close quarters. Hmm. So, you know, anyway, he used uh, these people to kind of like flatter the religious authorities and approach them and kind of style himself as a, you know, there's a funny poem uh, by Victor Hugo uh, about Napoleon that kind of sums it up. By the Nile, I find him once again. Egypt shines with the fires of his dawn. His imperial orb rises in the Orient. Victor, enthusiast, bursting with achievements, prodigious. He stunned the land of prodigies. The old sheikhs venerated the young and prudent emir. The people dreaded his unprecedented arms. Sublime, he appeared to the dazzled tribes like a Mahomet of the Occident. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Is that meant uh, to be dragging Napoleon? No. Um, no. Or just celebrating him? Okay, yeah. Cool. <laughs> yeah, um, no, that's unironic. Uh, typical French Revolution liberal. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's... Uh, so, yeah, I can see how that is where uh, the approach to the Orient uh, really <laughs> yeah. starts to, like, take shape, like a real trendsetter. Yes. Napoleon. Okay. In Palestine, it played out a bit differently in general because even though there certainly was, like, an attempt, like, you know, the French in Algeria or the uh, British in uh, India to an extent— like this uh, sort of a discourse of like true Islam, you know, like, uh, for instance, I think we talked about this before and we'll probably talk about it in this context, like, you know, later on uh, as we go through uh, all these all these sources and, uh, you know, this is a whole kind of like uh, loose narrative. But like to attack like the WACF, to attack the uh, public and family endowments like the yeah. British and in India and the French and Algeria would appear uh, appeal to the Quranic law of inheritance. They would say this is an innovation. You know, this is bad. This is like, you know, uh, mm. not in the Quran. This isn't, you know, right. Uh, and so they actually tried to use like Islamic arguments to undermine it. But in Palestine, it seems like their approach is a little bit different where they were just like, we can just get rid of these people, <laughs> you know. Um, well, yeah, what or did give happen? it to someone else? Yeah, yeah. What did happen with Napoleon in Palestine specifically? And well, um, when he like invaded Syria, it didn't like go super. Well. It didn't go as well as his campaign in Egypt. So, like, he, I think he kind of got like uh, pushed out like pretty like expediently. Like, he wasn't able to maintain the same foothold. I mean, eventually he like left Egypt like pretty quickly as well. Like he wasn't there for for too long. In and fact, Ottoman think, rule was reestablished. Yes, but the the seed, as it were, uh, perhaps was planted in yeah, the European definitely. mind. And then stop me if I'm you know skipping over anything critical. But then we jump up to the around what is it 1830. When yeah. Muhammad Ali, yeah. the leader of Egypt, mm. launches a campaign and basically like takes like basically re rebels against the Sultanate, yeah, uh, this the Ottoman Sultanate, and then takes uh, Palestine and Syria, basically, or the Syrian province. I forget administratively 
where in the early 1800s after Napoleon, is Palestine uh, considered its own sort of province or is it, or is a lot of it kind of contained no, it wasn't until the Syrian later, province? It wasn't until later and kind of due to um, like the influence of like the European conceptions of like Palestine that like there was an Ottoman attempt to kind of frame this or like a thought of it as a, as a province. Um, it was uh, like, I think that there were provinces like of Jerusalem, but uh, I don't think that like Palestine was its own province at this point. So like it, it kind of varied like in terms of where uh, people felt Palestine was aligned with like Syria or uh, Egypt. But uh, I think generally like during this time, it would have been part of a sham, like, you know, uh, Ottoman mm-hmm. Syria. Gotcha. Oh, just a note. Uh, it was right a there. Zidani or oh. earlier, right? Oh, it was sorry. a hero. Did I get hung up or something? No, no. Can you hear me? Uh, yeah, yeah. I couldn't hear you, you for a second. Oh, okay. Um, no, I just wanted to know, you were, you were referring to Zahir al-Umar um, and the Zidani yeah. clan earlier, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess they had uh, Acre, right? Or Acre? I, that always fucks Aka, with me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Aka or Acre. Yeah. Aka. Yeah. yeah. We're going to call it Aka because I don't like yeah. that it's just like Acre. Anyways. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, Acre or Aka. Um, yeah. That, you know, big port city, I guess, uh, Zahir al-Umar, I guess he had monopolized the cotton and olive oil trade from yeah. Palestine to Europe mm-hmm. in late 1700s. And uh, I just want to note that he was... The Ottomans defeated the clan in their Galilee strongholds in 1775 and 1776. So the first, you know, defeat of the Patriots um, did happen in 1776. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. 
talk about Muhammad Ali in Egypt and his uh, yeah. intervention? Actually, uh, George uh, Antonius, who's a pretty well-known uh, Arab like uh, historian, uh, mm -hmm. he, you know, in his book, uh, The Arab Awakening, which is probably, I think, is his most famous uh, work, he gives a pretty good rundown, uh, or at least, like, you know, I didn't read, like, too much about the Muhammad uh, Ali period beyond this, but I think it's a pretty good uh, overview. It's uh, in his second chapter of this book called A, F a False Start, I guess, in the idea of, like, you know, Arab uh, nationalism. Muhammad Ali came to Egypt from his birthplace in Kavala as an officer in the Albanian force detailed uh, in 1799 by the Sultan of Turkey to put an end to Bonaparte's invasion. He was then a young man of 30, whose remarkable gifts had not yet uh, had scope to reveal themselves. The Albanians were easily defeated by Napoleon, but it was the, this defeat that gave Muhammad Ali his chance. He succeeded uh, to the command of the force so that when, two years later, the French had evacuated Egypt, he found himself at the head of a small army in a position of authority. This he used to the best advantage in resourceful and astute ways, in which he displayed a political as well as soldierly talent. By 1805, he had become a military master of Egypt and had been recognized by his titular governor. His next opportunity was to occur in Arabia, and he spent the intervening six years on the task of consolidating his position in Egypt by breaking the power of the Mamluks and putting some order into the prevailing anarchy. By 1811, he had so far entrenched himself as to be able to turn his attention to Arabia, where the religious revival started by another great figure had led to a movement of military expansion on such a scale as to become a menace to the Caliph's authority in the Holy Land of Islam. This revivalist movement of the 18th century, which came to be known as the Wahhabi movement, originated in the teachings of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab, a native of Najd, <laughs> who had traveled widely in the Muslim world, studying theology, and had become imbued with a passionate zeal for reform. In his view, Islam had sunk into impiety. With the passage of the centuries, new practices have crept into use, for which, you know, we all know, blah, 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 innovations Saudis, had obtained currency, yeah. and superstitious uses had spread that seemed uh, to Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. Uh, indistinguishable from idolatry. He began a campaign of purification. He was a reformer, not in the sense he desired to change the doctrines of Islam or even a new interpretation of its tenets, but in the sense that he felt it his mission to denounce innovations and accretions and preach a return to Islam's former purity. He found an ally and a scion to the House of Saud, who accepted his teaching and became his secular champion. The formation of their partnership in 1747 marks the birth of the Wahhabi movement. It wow. grew rapidly enough in Central Arabia where it had sprung, but it was not until some 40 years later when it made itself felt outside. 
Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab died in 1792, and his ally, who had died 33 years before him, had been succeeded by his son Abdul Aziz ibn Saud, ancestor and namesake of the present Wahhabi king. And it was during the reigns that, of that ruler and his son Saud that the forces set into activity by the new teaching emerged out of Najd to denounce and dispute the Caliph's authority. Their first excursions were directed against Iraq and brought them to the gates of Baghdad, where in 1799 they compelled the Turkish governor to conclude a treaty with them. Two years later, they renewed their attack and sacked Karbala, a holy city of the Shia. Then they turned westwards and northwards, occupied Medina and Mecca, and invaded Syria to threaten Damascus and even Aleppo. They were still, uh, they were still uh, in 1811, where uh, Muhammad Ali, yielding at last to the sultan's pressing demands, dispatched an army under the command of one of his sons to recover the holy cities. The Egyptian campaign in Arabia lasted seven years and ended in a victory for Muhammad Ali. The holy cities were delivered, and an expeditionary force under the command of another son, Ibrahim, advanced eastward and succeeded in 1818 in capturing Dariya and forcing the surrender of the Wahhabi ruler. Ibrahim's advance into the heart of Najd, which involved a long march across an hospitable country, was a military achievement of outstanding merit and stamped him as a greater general even than his father. He had crushed, although he had not killed, the Wahhabi movement. His victories had rid the sultan of a formidable menace and restored his authority over the holy places of Islam. They had added luster to the fame of Muhammad Ali and prestige to his name throughout the Arab world. What is more significant still, they had brought him and his son into touch with the pulse of the Arab world and given them both, who were in no sense Arabs, the vision of an Arab empire and the ambition to be its architects. Muhammad Ali's project of carving out for himself an Arab empire from the Sultan's dominions was never realized. It crashed in the rock of Palmerston's opposition, that is Lord Palmerston, you know, the prime mm, minister. Yeah. But he came within sight uh, of it with his conquest of Syria. His triumph in Arabia had been followed by the successes. With an energy and a determination which compelled wonder, he organized his somewhat nondescript forces into a regular army and acquired a fleet. In 1820, an expeditionary force under the command of yet another uh, son advanced into the Sudan and conquered it. And the indefatigable Muhammad Ali did not flinch at the task of setting up an administration in that vast and chaotic territory. Uh, he sent expeditions to the Red Sea and put an end to piracy by bringing its ports on both the Arabian and African seaboards under his control. In response to the sultan's entreaties, he lent his assistance to the Turkish forces sent to quell the insurrection that had broken out in Greece. In 1822, he dispatched a naval force to occupy Crete. And two years later, a much greater military naval force led by the redoubtable Ibrahim, who landed in the Moria, conquered the peninsula and captured Athens. The Egyptian army, incomparably more efficient than the Turkish forces, repressed the revolt and were occupying the greater part of Greece when a combined British and Russian squadron destroyed the Turco-Egyptian fleet at Navarino. This defeat was a serious blow to Muhammad Ali, but far from damping his ambitions, it incited him to press his claim to the overlordship of Syria as a reward for his intervention in Greece. When the sultan had definitely refused to recognize the title of the province, he proceeded to take it. And once more, his victorious instrument was Ibrahim. The conquest of Syria was speedily effected. Once the fortress of Akka had surrendered uh, in May 1832, uh, from there, Ibrahim moved on in swift strides to occupy Damascus, route the Turkish forces near Homs, and inflict another defeat on them in the neighborhood of Aleppo. At the end of July, he was master of the whole of Syria. The sultan, taking alarm, dispatched emissaries to Muhammad Ali to open negotiations. Ibrahim, curbed by his father, waited, and when five months later the negotiations had broken down and a strong Turkish army marched against him, he resumed the offensive and won a crushing victory. The road to Constantinople lay undefended before him, and he pressed forward, but again he was stopped by orders from his father. The powers had intervened and brought pressure on Muhammad Ali. 
At last, in the spring of 1833, an agreement was arrived at by which the Sultan formally recognized Muhammad Ali as governor of Syria. For the next seven years, Ibrahim administered the country on behalf of his father until the end of 1840 when he was compelled, owing to European pressure combined with local discontent, to surrender his government and evacuate Syria. It was during the Egyptian occupation of Syria that Muhammad Ali's plans for setting up an Arab empire became a matter of public concern. He had cherished a dream for many years, but had not taken steps to enlist popular support for his designs. The conquest of Syria, however, and his recognition as governor of it gave him this opportunity. He was now an actual, if not titular, possession of an important portion of the Arab world that contained Mecca and Medina, Cairo, Jerusalem, and Damascus, and by an act of provision, which was not foreign to his ambitious nature, saw himself extending his sway over the remaining portions of it when wresting a title to the whole. It is on record that he intended to make a bid for the caliphate as well, and that he made no secret of his intention. He knew France would look with favor on the establishment of an independent and stable kingdom in the Arab countries lying as Syria, Egypt, and Arabia lay on the highway to the east, that is to say on England's route to India. He had encouragement from Austrian sources in the form of concrete suggestions placed before him by Count uh, Prokesh Austin, who arrived in Cairo on a special mission. In a note dated May 17, 1833, the Austrian diplomat outlined his suggestions in some detail. It provided for Mohammed Ali's assumption of the caliphate and the building up by him of an Arab empire to include Egypt and the Sudan, the Arabian Peninsula, Syria, and Iraq. The suggestion appears to have carried with it at any rate in Mohammed Ali's mind the implication that it was backed by the Austrian government. But whatever may have been the measure of foreign support and prospect, the opportunity before him was in itself alluring a laugh. He controlled the holy places of Islam. The Sharif of Mecca looked up to him rather than to the Sultan. The Sultan himself was unpopular with his Muslim as well as his Christian subjects. And for the Turkish forces, they were, in comparison with the reorganized Egyptian army, contemptible. The ground was propitious as far as conditions in the Arab world went. But elsewhere... There was one formidable obstacle, Lord Palmerston, who was adamant in his opposition to the idea of an Arab empire. Muhammad Ali realized that he would have to proceed warily, and he sought to improve the prospects of his scheme by gaining the Syrians over to an open espousal of it. In this, he was ably, perhaps too zealously, seconded by his son. An inkling of his father's plan had penetrated into Syria some time before Ibrahim began his advance and had predisposed the population in his favor. The Muslims, already stirred by the boldness of the Wahhabis' defiance of the Sultan, were prepared to welcome this fresh challenge to the detested rule of the Turk. Again, I think it's a little bit of a you know flourish here. Uh, this guy, you know, Antonius. You can see his perspective for sure. The Christians, envious of the fair treatment which uh, Christians in Egypt enjoyed under Muhammad Ali, were no less expectant. Not to say, you know, he's wrong with the popular support, but just like, you know, the invidious Turk stuff, like, you know, does come out. The powerful mm. Emir uh, Bashir of Lebanon, who was in touch with uh, and in sympathy with Muhammad Ali, played upon the feelings of the Muslims by skillfully dangling before them in the alluring prospect of an Arab empire to be set up after the expulsion of the Turk from Syria. Based, though it was on flimsy grounds, a belief arose and became widespread that an Egyptian conquest would bring freedom to the Arabs. And long before he had begun his advance, Ibrahim might detect signs of the welcome which awaited him for his championship of Arab liberation. Revolts had broken out in Damascus. Secret emissaries appeared in Cairo with earnests of Syrian support. When Ibrahim had at last overcome the obdurate resistance of the Pasha of Akka, he found that his progress across the rest of Syria far from being opposed, was acclaimed and abetted by the whole population. 
Here, a parallel suggests itself between Ibrahim's advance in 1832 and Allenby's victory in 1918. Both campaigns started in Egypt and had their end in the expulsion of the Turks from Syria. On each occasion, the invading army crossed Sinai into southern Syria and there, breaking the enemy's back with a well-timed blow, marched almost unopposed into Damascus, Homs, Hama, and Aleppo, with the active assistance of the Arab inhabitants. In both cases, the military advance had been heralded by the promises of political emancipation, and the progress of the conquerors abetted by a people whom the prospect of liberty had turned into eager allies. In both cases, too, the frustration of those hopes had its roots in the complexity of the European political system. <laughs> the assumption by Ibrahim of the governorship of Syria in 1833 placed him for a time in a position of unquestioned authority, and he applied himself from the start to the furtherance of ideas in regard to an Arab revival in the way of tangible results, his efforts came to nothing, but they were the product of vision as well as of ambition, and, ha he, and had the added grace of sincerity. In the fallow conditions of the age, they were doomed to remain sterile, yet the causes of his failure deserve closer study. And is their attempt to create an Arab movement, again, bear in mind these guys are Albanian, so like the kind of like don't like you know read too much of this. I, I did want to yeah. note that yeah. like like, <laughs> like that, that's an interesting thing. Like this guy yeah. that was like a major player in sort of like the the Ottoman sort of Middle East region was a, an ethnic Albanian, you know, yeah. as were like his sons and stuff. But yeah. uh, Albanians are Muslims, so yeah. you know we don't have the same ethno kind of thing yeah. going on like uh, see you know it's not like this whole thing was like led and, and very much instigated by like an albanian guy and his son so it's like mm -hmm. you know to make it about this whole thing of like you know not to say that there wasn't tension there absolutely was especially down like you know like th throughout but again like you know uh in some cases like arab elites like were very much like you know supported by uh the ottoman regime but they were not Arabs and had not mastered Arabic. They didn't even speak Arabic. Although Ibrahim <laughs> had learned to speak it with a certain fluency. Okay, sorry. Uh, and their advocacy of an Arab national revival, wanting in the incentive of race and the eloquence of a rich language, lacked the force of spontaneity. Their driving motive was personal ambition, and the desire to revive the Arab empire sprang primarily from their desire to acquire an empire. Whatever may have been the other causes of their failure, one lay in that inherent principle of weakness. Father and son were not altogether at one in their conceptions of the future empire. They united in their desire to transform their Arab conquest into a single kingdom with themselves and the descendants for its dynasty and to assume the title of Caliph. But they differed in their estimates of Arab capacity and of the reliance which would be placed on Arab cooperation. Muhammad Ali's aims were entirely acquisitive. He had set his heart on becoming Caliph and ruler of an independent kingdom and knew that in the attainment of those ends he would need the goodwill and perhaps the active support of the Arabs. But he had no real sympathy with them, did not speak their language, and had no high opinion of their talents. In his empire-to-be, his Turks and Albanians were to support the edifice of sovereignty, and the Arabs to figure as dutiful subjects. Ibrahim went further than his father in that he desired to see an Arab revival as well as to found an empire. He had come to Egypt as a boy and had grown up in Arab surroundings. His acquaintance with Arab history and culture had come to him with the first rudiments of knowledge. His sojourn in Arabia had brought him to contact with the virtues and defects of the race and their unalloyed state. His imagination had been touched, and his sympathies awakened. He acquired the conviction that the empire dreamed of by his father would rest on more lasting foundations if its groundwork were to be the regeneration of the Arab race. Uh, the divergence between father and son answered to a difference in their vision as well as in their temperaments. As a contemporary observer said, Muhammad Ali's genius was of a kind to create empires, while Ibrahim had the wisdom that retains them. Ibrahim arrived in Syria wearing, as it were, his sympathies on his sleeve and impressed foreign observers with the sincerity of his professions. He spoke of himself as an Arab and said, and liked uh, to be regarded as one. I came to Egypt as a child, he once remarked, and my blood has since then been colored, completely Arab by the Egyptian sun. He spoke openly 
of his aims and exerted himself to spread his ideas among the humble as well as the influential in Syria. A French envoy, the Baron uh, Bois Le Comte, who paid him a visit at the time, was struck with the breadth of his views and the freedom with which he professed them. He relates that Ibrahim made no secret of his intention to revive Arab national consciousness and restore Arab nationhood, to instill into the Arabs a real sense of patriotism, and to associate them in their fullest measure, uh, the government of the future empire um, in the government. And he regarded his father's ideas as narrow and merely imperialistic, and more suited to the state of enslavement into which the Arab world had sunk than to the politically independent status which he proposed on Muhammad Ali's death to lead the Arab race. The enlightened Frenchman was favorably impressed, and in a dispatch to his government paid homage to the general's vision. Ibrahim Pasha's idea of making the empire entirely Arab, he wrote in substance, is undoubtedly more satisfying to the mind and holds greater guarantees of stability and permanence than does his father's narrower conception. The only question is whether the Arabs are capable of governing themselves. Muhammad Ali thinks they are not. Ibrahim holds the opposite view. Both during his advance and in the course of his first two years in Syria, Ibrahim was active in spreading his ideas of a natural re of national regeneration and trying to convince the population that a new age had dawned for them with the advent of Muhammad Ali's rule. In his army proclamations, he referred in stirring terms to the glorious periods of Arab history and had infected his troops with his own enthusiasm. He had surrounded himself with a staff who shared his ideas and worked for their dissemination. And when he assumed the governorship, the first of his cares was to set a new machinery of administration which was a marked improvement on the old in most of the fundamental branches of state organizations, such as taxation, justice, education, law, and security. In the space of barely a year, he succeeded in establishing a new order based on religious and civil equality on the protection of lives and property, such mm -hmm. as Syria had not known since the days of Arab rule in Damascus. A new era had dawned indeed, and Ibrahim, pointing to his achievements, tried to show by concrete proof that, with the passing of Turkish rule, the Arabs could confidently look to a better future under the rule of Muhammad Ali and his dynasty. So again, you know, this guy's like, he has a clear point of view, but what he's about to say, I think it definitely, and a lot of it is motivated by a certain grievance with what he's about to describe, I think, you know, like the way that European powers have like frustrated uh, Arab self-determination. That's like his big axe to grind, you know, which is a reasonable one uh, to grind in spite. And, you know, so he, he like, uh, you know, and he's very much, you know, like a, uh, into the uh, Arab uh, nationalism. He was, uh, I think he was a Lebanese Christian. Yeah, Lebanese Eastern Orthodox Christian family. And he mm -hmm. was a civil servant in the British Mandate. Right. Uh, and yeah, he went to Cambridge University and his, his main thing was Britain had dishonored his prior commitments to the Arabs and instead pursued its own colonial interests at the expense of what Antonius calls the true will of the people, namely independence and the would-be Arab state. Anyway, and this is as he proceeds. In spite of this auspicious start, the new order did not live very long, but achieved its own destruction in an effort to attain permanence. The underlying cause was Europe's hostility. Ibrahim's march into Asia Minor had aroused the concern of the powers, as well as alarmed the Sultan. It had opened the eyes of the world to the ease with which Egypt might overpower Turkey. The European concert, by nature discordant, had one tune on which it always harped in unison, the maintenance of the Ottoman Empire. By the pressure it exerted on Muhammad Ali, it compelled him to come to terms with the Sultan and accept the governorship of Syria on a life tenure instead of on the basis of hereditary rule. This arrangement was highly distasteful to Muhammad Ali, but he was not strong enough to resist. And he accepted it with the settled intention of challenging it in due time. He needed to replenish his treasury and strengthen his fighting services. And it was in the pursuit of these two objectives that he committed the blunders, which contributed to his downfall in Syria. In execution of his father's orders, Ibrahim took measures which aroused widespread discontent. He imposed new taxes and introduced conscription. Two more unpalatable measures uh, could scarcely have been devised. 
To make matters worse, he decided as a prelude to general recruitment to disarm the population, and that, to a community in which a man's gun was his main security, came as a crowning provocation. Revolts broke out all over the country, first at Nablus and Hebron, then in the Lebanon and the regions east of Jordan. For several months, Ibrahim was mainly engaged in putting down the insurrection. Although he succeeded in restoring order for a time, he had lost his popularity and with it, the place he had won for himself and his plans in the public affection. And when, in 1840, European pressure forced him to evacuate Syria, he had scarcely a friend left in a population which, eight years before, had welcomed him as a liberator. Damn. How the yeah. Mighty Fall. Yeah. Really interesting figure. Yes. I've just been reading up a little bit because I noticed a little like a little footnote on his Wikipedia bio and I dug up a few academic papers. But you know, you mentioned earlier there that he sort of implemented a number of reforms, and I think some of which were not super popular and alienated him from it seems like yeah, the population. The especially um, yeah, after, you know, he yeah, became governor of Syria. Uh, it seems like, yeah, according to Andrews. exactly, yeah. and it seems like like one of the things that I know a few of these books uh, basically highlight as being like significant, uh, a significant change implemented by you know Muhammad Ali's rule that outlasted his rule that even remained that ends up kind of being one of these precursors to what would happen later is sort of giving expanded rights to Christians and Jews uh, and sort of lessening the sort of like privileges of Muslims, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, which I guess was like somewhat uh, controversial. But on that tip, like one of the things that was very interesting near the end of his rule before the uh, the Ottomans, like in collusion with, Uh, a few of the European powers sort of forced him out is uh, he sort of developed a certain relationship with a wealthy European philanthropist who Mm. I noticed mentioned a few times in various books. I'm talking about Sir Moses Montefiore, Mm -hmm. right? And Montefiore, now I just want to say like that name always jumps out at me because one of the descendants of Moses Montefiore, they are one of the wealthier sort of like banking business dynasties of like Europe, often to sort of put on the same, on a similar level to maybe the Warburgs or the Rothschilds. They, you know, they are Jewish. And one of the descendants of Moses Montefiore is a Simon Sebag Montefiore, who I think is known primarily for two things. You know, he's like an author and a journalist. Um, I think he wrote a lot of very poorly sourced and sus biographies of Stalin, which, you know, really go out of their way uh, to kind of like smear him as like a pedo and like all this other kind of stuff. But funny, like he smears Stalin as a pedo in his books. Uh, He is also one of the people that has shown up in Jeffrey Epstein's black book and was very good friends with him. So that's um, that's probably something we won't encounter until maybe uh, later down the line in this. But, you know, people high up uh, in sort of like Zionist society being having some kind of relationship with Epstein. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, we could trace like I'm just I'm just putting a pin in that for now. But Moses Montefiore was like one of the first uh, funders and promoters of kind of Zionist resettlement of Palestine. And I guess. He had a somewhat fortuitous meaning uh, meeting 
uh, he made a visit to Palestine, I think in 1839, and he actually met with Muhammad Ali, because I saw it written here just on his uh, on his Wikipedia, just a tiny little, you know, tiny little line, allegedly... He offered a basically Montefiore came to Palestine and offered a proposal to Muhammad Ali to establish uh, settlements for European Jews Mm -hmm. to come and basically settle, which I think he pitched to him as kind of like a a potential boost to the uh, Palestinian economy, if you will, Mm -hmm. Um, because I think a lot of these early ideas had to do with uh, sort of organized agricultural, you know sort of communities that would uh bring you know maybe more more modern techniques or something like that and uh and be like an economic boon and allegedly like muhammad ali uh agreed to this and said okay yeah you can do that but then he was overthrown in 1840 and so that specific sort of plan was delayed for a little while now eventually uh moses montefiore in 1860, uh, actually did build the first like Jewish residential settlement outside of the walls of Jerusalem, which today is known as Mishkanat uh, Sha'ananim, I think, which is, uh, yeah, still there. Outside of the walls of Jerusalem, there were always Jews living within the city, but mm-hmm. it was considered dangerous uh, because of general kind of lawlessness and banditry to sort of move out of the the gates, as it were. That was in, like, 1860. But what did I have there? Yeah, I I just want to read here from this. Uh, I found Agricultural Land in Palestine, Letters to Sir, Mo- Letters to Sir Moses Montefiore, 1839, which I guess talks about some of this, says, let's see... For political and economic reasons, which we shall not detail here, the Egyptian administration treated Christians and Jews with greater tolerance and equality. Despite the opposition of the Muslim majority, discrimination against Jews and Christians in matters such as dress, construction, taxation, law, and justice was abolished, though not military conscription. In a meeting with Montefiore in June 1839, Ahmed Duzdar, the government of Jerusalem, explained the new policy of equality this way, quote, You know the age when it was said, this is a Christian and that a Jew, and there is a Musulman. But now, these times are past. Never ask what he is. Let him be of whatsoever religion he may. Do him justice, as the Lord of the world desired of us. The Egyptian administration initiated activities aimed at developing agriculture and commerce. Before the conquest, agriculture in Palestine was in a was in a state of neglect and decline. Mm-hmm. Villages were decaying, were being abandoned. We'll just we'll put that aside for now, whether or not this person, this writer is like, whatever. But this is the result of instability regarding the ownership of land, various kinds of government taxes and assessments, which made agriculture unprofitable and a reluctance to invest in this branch due to the insecurity of life and property. The Egyptians encouraged the cultivations of lands which had formerly been abandoned, and the authorities took large-scale measures in the sphere of agriculture to improve and increase output. In many cases, though, this policy was executed in a tyrannical and arbitrary manner, causing hardship to the population, mainly because many villagers were drafted for long periods of compulsory labor, together with their work animals, and because Muslim men were subject to military conscription. Uh, Ibrahim Pasha showed a marked interest in agricultural matters, first in Egypt and later in Syria. This was evident in experiments with new crops, coffee, indigo, Egyptian cotton, the planting of 300,000 olive trees in the vicinity of Akka, 
and the introduction of a Spanish breed of sheep to the same area, the local inhabitants were impressed by the change, and in many places they themselves began planting and preparing land for cultivation. Many villages which had been abandoned were settled anew. Ibrahim invested considerable capital in agricultural products. So, okay. There was a lot of development on the agricultural front. I'm trying to see, like, when exactly... Okay, the, okay, this is interesting. This is under the section Minorities and Real Estate. Ibrahim mm-hmm. Pasha's introduction of de facto equality between Muslims and non-Muslims in Palestine, greater security for, of life and property, and an improved legal system opened up opportunities for Jews and Christians to acquire real estate. At first, they bought urban properties in particular, whose legal status was, def- was defined as mulk, or real estate yeah. held under full and absolute private ownership. During that same period, the Kolel of the Parushim bought courtyards and houses in Jerusalem, some of them outside the Jewish quarter of the city, in the Bab el-Hutta area. Eliezer Bergman, who came to the country and settled in Jerusalem in the middle of the decade of Muhammad Ali's rule, notes in two letters that, quote, Jews, heaven preserved them, are now permitted to buy houses for themselves under full ownership, and several Ashkenazi Jews of Polish origin have already bought houses with full title to them at the edge of the city, not far from one of the gates. Bergman may well have had in mind those five courtyards next to Bab al-Hutta, fine properties with gardens and trees and water cisterns hewn from stone, which Menahem Ari ben Shmuel Halevi mentioned in his letter to Montefiore in 1839. Halevi noted that these had been bought from non-Jews, and the deeds of sale were written in Arabic script and had been drawn up by the Mahkeme, uh, the Muslim Sharia court. Another Jew, Moshe Sachs of Jerusalem, who is known for the plans he developed regarding Jewish settlement in Palestine, described to those whom he met during his stay in Furth how Jews were now able to acquire real estate in Palestine, which they had not been allowed to do before. On the basis of this report, Rabbi Zvi Hirsch Lehren wrote to the rabbi of Furth in the summer of 1836 that, quote, I have learned that Jews are now permitted to buy houses and courtyards in Jerusalem, whereas in the past they could not do so. Hmm. Okay, so th- that's a, that obviously is going to end up being a kind of uh, major development, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even though it's quite on a small scale in the 1830s during Muhammad Ali's rule. But correct me if I'm wrong, but even after Muhammad Ali is overthrown and Ottoman rule is reestablished, those rules are not reversed. I think that it was later that they were... Uh, reverse because yeah it took a little bit longer for that to happen when which year did that take place and i mean it wasn't really like uh that because a lot of the time like these rules were like kind of ignored and like there were like kind of like ways around them but it's a complex uh topic let me see if i can find like the reference uh that i I, I'm trying, I have so many sources again that I'm like trying to see which uh this is a good article I think oh but let me uh note quickly like you know I just wanted to to kind of you know make a point about uh the Muhammad Ali period you know this piece by uh Antonius is certainly like very Arab nationalist and he certainly also has a Christian perspective where he's seeing kind of this like you know and I don't really again this is like a very it's certainly like a more polemical book than some of these things. You know, I'm not like totally against his perspective, especially in terms of like, it, you know, his uh, hatred of Europe. But uh, I wanted to read this part in particular where, you know, kind of 
uh, makes a a good point about the sort of a, the uh, Eastern question where it says, mm-hmm. um, talking about Palmerston, he was equally alert over the Arab kingdom in a letter dated the 21st of March, 1833 uh, to the British minister at Naples. He wrote, his, that is, uh, Muhammad Ali's real design is to establish an Arabian kingdom, including all the countries in which Arabic is the language. There might be no harm in such a thing in itself, but as it would imply the dismemberment of Turkey, we could not agree to it. Besides, Turkey is as good an occupier of the road to India as an active Arabian sovereign would be. Thus, it was not merely fear of Russian hegemony that moved Palmerston to oppose the growth of Muhammad Ali's power and caused him, in the crisis of 1840, to dispatch a fleet to expedite the expulsion of Ibrahim's forces from Syria. Yeah, so, you know, you can see uh, his point. But, yeah, I mean, in terms of this issue, I guess we'll get into it. Like, in terms of this issue of the, like, equality of the different religions, like, it's... The thing, it wasn't necessarily that like equality was instituted, but it's like the way in which it was like Antonius goes on like a rant, like subsequently where he says like, oh, you know, the reason like Muslims were upset about that, but it's because they had no concept of patriotism. You know, it's like, well, patriotism based on what, you know, like that was like what people's identity was mostly bound up in was like their religion. You know, mm-hmm. the idea of like a national identity, like, you know, I mean, if the early identity was as Arabs. That's like, you know, a bit is complicated as well. Like it could exist, but, you know, and certainly exists to some extent now, but it's uh, complicated. Like te- there's definitely tensions between Arab Christians and Muslims like today, you know. So uh, the idea, it's not so much that like these uh, groups were equalized, but that like the systems that uh, regulated their interactions were like transformed very dramatically like and that maybe leads into this piece that i thought i would uh cite on the point you were just making which is a good one it's called a whose land uh by lorenzo mm-hmm. camel land tender in late 19th early 20th century palestine this goes into some of the systems of land tenure that like existed uh and it, you know, takes on this idea that at the time of the partition of Palestine, over 70% of the did not legally belong to the local Arab majority. So the author writes, in the Palestinian context, property ownership is a particularly important issue. It was so in the initial phase of the British mandate when it represented one of the first difficulties the government of London found itself dealing with. It was so the year in which the United Nations decided to divide the Holy Land. Numerous Israeli institutions and sympathizers claimed that, quote, over 70% of Palestine did not legally belong to the Arabs, but rather to the British-mandated government. It is so nowadays, as can clearly be demonstrated by the almost daily conflicts that arise in the West Bank and in various neighborhoods of East Jerusalem, Sheikh Jarrah being first and foremost. In this article, I will shed light on diverse ways in which land ownership has been treated in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Due to the uh, entangled cultural context that encompassed Ottoman and Western as well as local understandings of land ownership, multiple meanings were attributed to this phenomenon by different parties. The relatively slow infiltration of quote-unquote Western or what we perceive as quote-unquote modern concepts regarding land tenure had far-reaching implications that have lasted until today. These most roughly concerned on the ground, uh, the uh, Palestinian fellahin, had uh, peasants had no influence in these decisions and since they had no voice representing their interests they were the easiest to blackmail and the most exposed to possible abuse in the following section i will provide an introduction to land tenure classifications in late ottoman palestine and i will explain how a complex system such as the musha has been simplified uh, and outline the danger of such an approach i will then point out some of the most far-reaching misrepresentations regarding to the land and its local majority 
Based on such an analysis, I will demonstrate that the still widespread claim that at the date of partition of Palestine, 1947, over 70% of it did not legally belong to the local Arab population, but to the British mandated power, is based on an approach that does not take on board uh, the rights, needs, and certainly not the traditions of the local population. Such a misleading interpretation was first proposed to serve the self-interest of the British mandatory power, and then upheld by many organizations such as the Israeli Academic Committee on the Middle East. And it is often used by the Israeli authorities in legal cases and is supported by uh, well-known scholars. So as she goes into the land tenure classifications, or he does. Up until 1858, there was no obligation in Palestine to register proprietary deeds of any land. Moreover, in 1867, uh, the year in which foreigners were permitted to purchase property in the Ottoman Empire, you know, there you go, including excluding Hejaz, the only mm. system available to a foreigner intending to purchase property subject to the authority of the port was, to a, was by attempted bribery and the use of fictitious intermediaries, practices which, in fact, remained commonplace until the fall of the port. This means that in 1854, the year in which Lord Ashley, uh, 1801 to 1885, acted so that Her Majesty's ambassador to Constantinople, Stafford Canning, uh, 1786 to 1880, would persuade the Sultan to grant Jews the possibility to old land in Great Syria, the situation in the field was at best poorly defined, though it had been ascertained, as noted by Herman Melville, that all those who cultivate the soil in Palestine are Arabs. The ownership and or use of a given piece of land was divided into a series of categories, which may be summarized as the seven described below. Mulk, which you mentioned. The owners mm -hmm. of the mulk benefited both from the possession and the use uh, of the asset. Most of the property in various cities, for example, within the walls of Jerusalem, fell under this category. This perception was rooted in the remote past leading back to the Islamic conquest of the 7th century when agricultural land was considered a spoil of war at the disposal of the Muslim community. While les propriétés bads dans la ville at le bourg forent considérés comme bien privés. Oh, what is the translation? The properties built in the cities and towns were regarded as private goods. In the absence of heirs, the mulk became state property. The property deeds were more often than not registered by the Islamic religious courts. According to Ruth Kark, the mulk was, to all effects, private property, mainly located in cities and villages, so of little re relevance to the agricultural context. Other well-known researchers, including uh, Hari Islamglu, have explained that in the Ottoman category, mulk did not so much refer to absolute ownership as to a certain kind of claim over land revenues. Beyond the various interpretations in the rural areas of the region, uh, the area of land falling under this category was insignificant to the point that the Hope Simpson Report of 1930 defined it as negligible. Miri, property of the state, including all the land not defined as mulk, or rather around 90% of the surface area of the Ottoman Empire, was distributed by the empire itself for use, therefore without ownership in exchange for a tenth of what was produced in a tax. New buildings or plantations could be created only with explicit permission from the Ottoman authorities. Wow, you know, they didn't have private property. Hmm. When, no, <laughs> when the land, yeah, state ownership, uh, it's, wow, hmm, everything was, uh, you know, nationalized or imperialized. Uh, when the land uh, in question was left uncultivated for more than three years, the person who managed its use died without any heir. The land became categorized as Miri Mahlul, vacant, or rather it was reconverted into property that was completely in the hands of the state. Doreen War uh, Warriner noted that as far as the use of the land was concerned, following the laws introduced in 1858, the Miri and Mulk categories were in reality the same thing. Haim Gerber, on the other hand, drew attention to the dangers of associating Miri land with concepts more familiar to us. State land in the modern sense is land the state wishes to keep out of individual use, just forest land. Such a legal category did not exist in the Ottoman Empire and came into being only in new states. Miri land was not state land in this sense. There was never really a question of usurpation of such land. At the most, it could be misused. 
Also, in this case, beyond the different possible interpretations, it is noteworthy that the increase of land held as private property, mulk, to the detriment of state lands, miri, was not infrequently perceived as a tangible threat by a significant percentage of the local population. This is mainly explained by the fact that private properties, mulk, were excluded from the products that the port could implement for the benefit of the community. Musha. These were lots of land that were the property of the state, Miri, granted for use to entire communities or families, therefore not to single individuals. The oldest source to date describing the system in question, though not cited explicitly, was written by Swiss explorer Johann Ludwig Buchhardt, and although its origins are perhaps rooted in a much older tribal system. On the eve of the First World War, it is estimated that around 70% of the agricultural land in Palestine fell under this category. Although different types of musha exist, some more egalitarian than others, it is possible to state that in general it was a type of collective landholding, assigned in accordance with a series of parameters, for example, the number of males in a given family, through which the farmers in a given village benefited from the use of the land in question and rotation. This rotation incur occurred every one, two, or five years and was designed so that every farmer would have the possibility to work the land that was considered to be the most fertile. Uh, the Waqf, this refers to the land or assets that in accordance with the Sharia are at the service of the Ummah, the you know the community the umma the mm -hmm. profits from such assets managed exclusively by the waqf a pious islamic foundation were and are mainly destined for the support of the most disadvantaged persons the waqf fell outside the ottoman administration and mawat this land was owned by the state therefore miri often uncultivated and not reclaimed because of this defined uh dead mawat uh, the lack of surveys carried out this time in Palestine makes it difficult to quantify the percentage of land in this category. Going beyond exact numbers, it in most cases located in areas not well suited to cultivation at a distance of a few kilometers from a given village. Even without authorization from the responsible authorities, more than a few villages use the dead land mainly for grazing purposes, but also for cultivation. And in just as many cases, it was land, at least in an unofficial capacity. Uh, at the disposal of those who benefited from it. Joran Yiftachel, a geographer at Ben-Gurion University, has warned the scientific community not to misinterpret the past, showing, for example, that the Bedouin of the Negev, often victims of atavistic cliches of the Bedouin predator, were in reality owners of a large proportion of the dead land on which they lived and from which they drew large, a uh, large amount of their sustenance. To claim that the port considered such land as dead and that it was therefore without any proprietary words is challenged by Yiftachel. The Israeli interpretation of the Ottoman law, an interpretation formulated decades after the Ottoman Empire ceased to exist. This was not the interpretation of the Ottoman government uh, that the Ottoman government itself gave to its own laws. The Ottomans took care to purchase the land on which Be'er Sheva was established. When you buy land, you thereby acknowledge the ownership rights of the seller from whom you bought it and of the community to which the seller belongs. Abdul Hamid respected the fact that the Bedouins were the owners of, and he had to pay them for it. Had he considered the land to be dead, Mewet, under the law of 1858, that would have given him the right to take it without paying. Bedouin society had a very clear concept of land ownership, and it was the, one of the most important things in their lives. Uh, the last two, Matruka, this was land belonging to the state designed for public use, rivers, roads, valleys, irrigation canals, and forests. Jiftlik, uh, also called uh, Mudawara. Uh, this refers to Miri land, mainly located in the Jordan Valley, that had been held in the name of the Ottoman Sultan. The Ottoman authorities had the authority to reassign these lands to new applicants. So this uh, part is uh, interesting, too, because it gets into kind of the issue of like the Muslim majority in an interesting way, I think. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we're talking about the Musha thing. Uh, Haim Gerber defined the Musha as communal ownership of land, while other researchers, among them Jacques uh, Welleris uh, and Gabriel Baer, and more recently Ruth Clark, identified it as a collective form of use of a given piece of land. Although the second definition is more accurate, the distinction is more apparent than real if we consider that the legal principle underlying all Miri properties was based on the idea that the land was the property of the community of believers represented by their emir. 
so you can see how like a change in like the religious system can like you know unsettle the like types of things like because the society is so like you know built on those things like, if not done carefully it can mm -hmm. cause upheaval but uh, he writes uh, uh paraphrasing a pioneer in the st study on the theme produced in 1971 by john rudy most rural land in the Ottoman Empire was not owned in the Western sense of the term, but was held hereditarily on an usufruct basis known as Miri. The ultimate owner, as elsewhere in Islam, was deemed to be the Ummah Muhammadiyah, as personified in this case by the Sultan. The individual's rights were always expressed as a fraction of the whole. Interesting. Yeah, this uh, and this gets into this issue of the majority uh, and the you know the sort of uh, difference of the religious communities until the introduction of the law of tapu uh, of 1858 which made registration of all lands located in a special file obligatory registration was voluntary up to that point tradition consolidated over generations had been sufficient to guarantee the claims of all moreover the natives often completely unaware of the meaning of concepts such as private property feared <laughs> collateral effects that would follow registration taxes and conscription in the army this mix of suspicion and hostility towards the newly introduced provisions were recorded in detail by Samuel Burkheim in an article appearing in 1894 in the Quarterly Statement of the Palestine Exploration. The Turkish laws which have been introduced within the last few years in Palestine with reference to land tenure, which are being rigorously enforced, are changing all these ancient laws and customs, much against the will and the wish of the people. The lands are divided by an imperial commissioner into various portions and given to individual villagers. They receive title deeds for individual ownership, and each one is at liberty to sell his portion to whomever he pleases, either to a member of the village or to a stranger. The villager then sells his hak el muzara, the right of cultivation in the land, not as mulk, but as amiria, miri and is subject to taxes as such, the object of the government being to break down the old custom of Musha'at. The regulations of 1858-1867, laid out in a European-style complex bundle of capitalist and pre-capitalist features, were an integral no. part of a broader process which can be traced to the Tanzimat and to the related efforts to centralize and, to a certain extent, westernize the ever more fragile Ottoman machine. Through these, as well as attempting to exploit the unused land, the port tried to identify and therefore exercise its own direct control over the farmers in order to increase tax revenues, take control of as much state land as possible, and pay off a part of the debts incurred with European powers. The registration process was carried out in an approximate manner. No system of land mapping or measurement was foreseen, only descriptions entered the borders of various parcels, and only starting in the late 1860s. The first on-site surveys were carried out by a commission sent by the port on horseback in 1870. The object of attention was agricultural land, which the commission members were meant to divide into categories, abandoned areas and areas of public use. For example, forests and roads were not registered. Throughout most of the empire in the providence, provinces of present-day Iraq, for example, as well as in the large percentage of the Palestinian region, the area of Jerusalem, also due to its specificity, represented an exception to the rule, the new regulations did not achieve desired effects. On the contrary, the Falahin, fearing self-exposure, decided in many cases to register their land using the names of deceased relatives or noble residents of major cities. The new regulations fixed two other particularly important aspects, the principle of property transference through inheritance and the practice according to which whoever used Miri land for more than five years, having paid the relative taxes, could automatically hold it as their own. In the short term, the effects of such practices were not relevant. The farmers, in fact, continued to cultivate their own lands. The long-term effects, on the other hand, were destabilizing. First of all, because the registration of plots in the name of single taxpayers undermined the very foundations of the Musha, based, in fact, on the annual redistribution of the land. The second, regarding the loss of the descendants of those same farmers of their right to use the land, which had been cultivated for so long without interruption for generations. This gave rise to a paradox. Those who cultivated the land did not own it, and those who owned the land did not cultivate it. 
in the words of Kenneth Stein, where owner-occupiers did not initially lose the right to their land, they lost control over their land's future disposition. They became increasingly less independent and more the wards of notables. In particular, the inhabitants of the coastal plain, who were reckoned as the small proprietors of the country and who sometimes practiced the Musha system, strenuously denied that they had any landed property whatever, simply to save the cost of title deeds. Others parted with their property for a nominal sum to landowners. In this way, many fellahin lost legal control of their patrimony. Damn. Wow. Yeah. And fascinating. Okay. So, so really, it's interesting. So when the, when the sort of argument is rolled out that like they didn't have deeds to like this land, well, you have to take into account that they had a different conception of quote unquote ownership of like, uh, truly whose land, like people have different ways of, uh, of defining it. And it sounds like they had this sort of, I don't know, almost like libertarian communist, like basically like yeah. Islamic approach to like uh, like cycling it through sort of different families. So like everybody had a chance to cultivate the best land. And clearly, I mean, they'd sort of been using the system for generations and for a very long time. But then the encroachment of sort of like capitalist private property concepts into yeah. this uh starts to destabilize it and some of them you know have an incentive to 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 not say it's my land because they're trying to avoid onerous taxes i'm basically thinking like alex jones should be on the side of like the bedouin you know (laughs) shepherds and like farmers and stuff like you know you want to fight you better believe you got (laughs) one you know like well yeah uh, and they ended up all outside forces trying to take their land you know they ended up having to sell their land to like absentee landowners, basically. Amazing. You know, they were, yeah. Thank the you. peasants Progress. were persuaded to sell their, you know, this later on in this article says the peasants were easily persuaded to sell their prescriptive rights to the land they cultivated for nominal prices to the rich who grew richer in the process. It was members of this rich class of absentee landlords who made large profits by selling them to the early Zionists. Uh, Ooh. Yes. See, um, yeah, once, uh, I mean, yes. Yep. Um, this is another so this is the point that i wanted to make relative to this whole uh issue like of the uh you know uh, minority because i feel like that's you know a, a pe- like a, a a polemic that gets like trotted out about like eh, the the dimitude uh i guess the limitude but you know but uh but like anyway uh this gets like trotted out and uh i think like it's uh very facile and like not helpful so i think this is an important point uh, here too. Uh, so the account given by Tibawi allows the introduction of an aspect often poorly developed and analyses dedicated to the matter. The references to the perception, as common as it is imprecise, that several historians showed in relation to the rural Muslim population, or rather the same fellahin who sold the major percentage of the land in the sphere of the effendi, absentee or not. In fact, it is often taken for granted that, being for the most part Muslim, the fellahin were in some way protected more than the minorities present on the site, for example, Jews, Christians, and Protestants. Protestants, including the Templars who reached Palestine in 1868. It is in any case a simplification that, in relation to the last decades of the 19th century, primary sources tend to reject. When in in the 1870s and 1880s, Palestine found itself dealing with the stagnation that could be felt in every sector of the local population, aggravated further by famine, poor harvest, and an exponential rise in prices, as well as the mass conscription imposed on all available men in support of the wars being fought by the port, starting with the Russo-Turkish War of 1877 and 1878, the fellahin themselves are the weakest links, the easiest to blackmail, and the most exposed to possible abuse. 
they who at the end of the decade between the 19th and 20th centuries represented the strong majority of the local population were in fact the only ones to not have a great power backing them to whom they could turn and on whom they could depend not only did the fellahin not have any direct access to the halls of power in constantinople but what is more due to their strange strange fragility they were the first to suffer from the corruption and despotism of the port those directly affected were not the only ones to have a clear view of this. On the contrary, one of the most accurate analyses of this matter was produced in 1879 by the British consul to Jerusalem, Noel Temple Moore. Wow, his middle name is Temple. Uh, 1833 to 1903. This source deserves further exhibition for clarity. I like this quote a lot. So, mm. wheat and grain are at double their normal prices. Instead of combating these evils by remedial measures, the conduct of those in authority greatly aggravates them. The corruption and endless abuses in every branch of Turkish provincial administration are too well known. The greatest sufferers thereby are incontestably the Muslim rural population, the bone and sinew of the country, and whose numbers, as compared with that of the non-Muslim's inhabitants, is four to one. Whilst every other community can and does, in case of need, appeal to the protection and sympathy of powerful advocates, the Muslim man has no one to look to. The actual governor, Arifi Pasha, is deficient in energy and initiative. In strong contrast with the inertia of the rulers of the country is the activity deployed by foreigners. The several German settlements are prospering, whilst the influx continues of foreign Jews, mostly Polish and German, who, availing themselves of the rate now professed by foreigners of holding real estate in Turkey, are buying land and building houses in all directions. Damn it. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's uh, so many A-nut news in one passage. Um, yeah. Oh, also, I think something we haven't mentioned yet that uh, is sort of flagged as like a big turning point is I think the first British consul arrived, was sort of established, the first British consulate was established in uh, the interior of Palestine in Jerusalem, I think in 1838. Mm-hmm. near the end of Muhammad Ali's sort of reign. And that was actually, surprise, almost surprisingly so, like that was the first time that any European power was like officially represented in uh, Jerusalem in particular. And of course, that sort of like opened the door pretty soon. Once the 1840s happen, a lot of different European powers start sliding in. I think that is when the... In, the English and German financed uh, Protestant cathedral is built yeah. uh, throughout the 1840s, and some of these earliest—I uh, guess you would—you would call them proto-Zionist uh, kind of movements, because like mm-hmm. Theodore Herzl, you know, obviously there were about 50 years before that. But you know, people like uh, Moses Montefiore and sort of his allies in Europe were already kind of trying to plan uh their entry point i just want to correct something slightly actually even though i've lost the wikipedia article that (laughs) said that like montefiore went to muhammad ali and asked him to approve like jewish settlements and muhammad ali said yes uh like the actual source cited is a little bit more complicated than that so i just want to read this little part about yeah like the late 1830s and uh montefiore and like his movements in this time, they write that uh, this is the fitting place to mention that Montefiore preferred to operate by political means to secure the agreement and support of the Pasha of Egypt for large scale agricultural development by Jews in Palestine. At the start of his visit to the Holy Land, Montefiore had in mind a, quote, project for enabling and encouraging Jews to earn their livelihood from agriculture. 
After a series of meetings he had with various people eager to act and knowledgeable about agriculture, studying their letters and visiting some of the sites, Montefiore formed a plan which he wrote about in his diary as follows, quote, I am sure if the plan I have in contemplation should succeed, it will be the means of introducing happiness and plenty into the Holy Land. In the first instance, I shall apply to Muhammad Ali for a grant of land for 50 years, some one or two hundred villages, giving him an increased rent from 10 to 20 percent, and paying the whole in money annually at Alexandria, but the land and villages to be free during the whole term, from every tax or rate, either of pasha or governor of several districts, and liberty being accorded to dispose of the produce in any quarter of the globe. This grant obtained, I shall, please heaven, on my return to England, form a company for the cultivation of the land and the encouragement of our brethren in Europe to return to Palestine. Many Jews emigrate to New South Wales, Canada, and C. It says sick. I don't know, Uh typo. But in the Holy Land, they would find a greater certainty of success. Here they will find wells already dug, olives and vines already planted, and a land so rich as to require little manure. By degree, I hope to induce the return of thousands of our brethren to the land of Israel. I am sure they would be happy in the enjoyment of the observance of our holy religion in a manner which is impossible in Europe. So Montefiore's plan and the way he chose to operate a meeting with Muhammad Ali in Alexandria differed from the course of action recommended to him by William Tanner Young, then the British vice consul in Jerusalem. Young, who had assumed his post in February 1839, met Montefiore in Jerusalem in June 1839. At their meeting, the vice consul expressed his support for the idea of Jews engaging in agriculture in order to alleviate their grinding poverty, but he recommended that they begin, quote, in a small way, so as not to arouse the suspicions of Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali was not inclined to assist the Jews to realize their hopes. When Montefiore met the Pasha on July 13, 1839, and asked him to lease lands and villages in Palestine that would not be subject to any taxes or demands of local officials, and for which he would pay rent for a 50-year period directly to the Pasha in Alexandria, Muhammad Ali's reply was cleverly evasive, which may be seen from Montefiore's report, quote, referring to the one for renting land of him in Palestine, he said he had no land there. But any contract I might make with the Musulmans should have his approval, and he would send it to Constantinople for confirmation. On repeating that I had been led to believe that His Highness possessed land there, from information I had received when in the country, he replied that if I could point out the parts belonging to him, I could have them. He said he would be glad to see the land better cultivated, and I might send proper persons with agricultural implements. I told him I told him that in the cultivation of land, security was necessary for both land and person, and I hoped they would have it. This he also promised. Hmm. However, Muhammad Ali was not prepared to put in writing what he had guaranteed orally. He put off Montefiore's secretary with minor requests and had him running back and forth until Montefiore and his party left Alexandria on July 14, 1839. Before their ship sailed, the Pasha promised, quote, I shall send him to Montefiore in reply to his letter, two letters in reply, one which will reach him when he would be performing quarantine in Malta, acknowledging the receipt of his letter and informing him that I will take steps to ascertain all particulars respecting the land he wishes to take on lease, 
the second letter in which all particulars respecting the contract and the pointing out of land which belongs to me, to the Pasha, or which I shall have to take for Sir Moses from others, he will receive as soon as we shall have obtained all the required information. This is a way of evading the matter, since these letters were never sent to their destinations. At the end of December 1930, or at the end of December 1839, Montefiore sent a reminder from England to the Egyptian Minister of Finance, Bogos Bey, who had been personally involved in the meetings and had been a party to the promises made, but the reminder received no reply. And in March 1840, when word arrived of the Damascus blood libel and then of Ibrahim Pasha's withdrawal from Palestine, the plan was dropped. Oh, and just as a side note, uh, at the very same time, in the spring of 1840, the English clergyman T.S. Grimshaw, who advocated the return of the Jews to the Holy Land in connection with beliefs concerning the coming of the millennium in or around the year 1840, met Muhammad Ali in Alexandria. At their meeting, the minister tried to find out from the Pasha what his attitude towards the Jews would be and what status he would grant them. The Pasha replied that he would welcome them, assist them, and give, quote, full protection both to person and to property. In response to Grimshaw's question as to whether he would be willing to grant the Jews land in Palestine, for which they would pay rent to the Pasha, and which would enable them to raise themselves from their state of great destitution, Muhammad Ali replied, as he had to Montefiore a year before, quote, I have no land in Palestine that I can appropriate to such a purpose. I have a supreme right over all but I have an individual right to no part. The land belongs to whom it belongs. But I beg leave to make this reply, that if those who are proprietors are willing to sell, and the Jews are willing to buy, I will guarantee the faith of such a covenant, and secure them in all the rights of their purchase. So, okay, you see, like, the nuance that he's playing with there, right? That mm-hmm. you just, like, from what you had just read, from whose land, that, you know, he's kind of, like, playing on this, like, technicality of, like, yeah, I have like dominion over all this land, but it's not my land to sell. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I have a supreme right overall, but I have an individual right to no part. The land belongs yeah. to who? It's such a great line fitting for uh, this whole topic. The land belongs to whom it belongs. You know, like that line yeah. <laughs> contains yeah. multitudes. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and. You know, I I would take that to mean is like the people that have lived on it for generations. Yeah, like, that effectively is it belongs to them. Uh, yeah, and you know he and he says if they're willing to sell it to you, that's one thing. But I can't just go above the heads yeah, of the people living on the you. land yeah. and just give it to you, which of course is effectively what would sort of end up happening uh, yeah, later down the road in history. hideous ways, yes. Yeah, you see Wikipedia kind of running interference there being like, oh yeah, Muhammad Ali totally approved of it and said it was awesome. And like, Wikipedia totally, sucks uh, about yeah. literally everything that matters in the world. Um, yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> like everything that like matters, it, Wikipedia just blows. It's terrible. Um, and it makes sense that it would be terrible, but yeah, like, you know, by it's fine, like starting point, I guess, but it just blows. Um, I mean, it led me to this source that actually had more nuance and it's just, if you only read what's written there, oftentimes. There's so many uh, times that has happened to me where I've gone to check mm -hmm. a source from something in Wikipedia and it didn't say what it like thought, like what it said, it said in the Wikipedia article, you know, like it said something completely different. Like, I think you can get away with it because people don't check, you know? Um, yeah 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 interesting side note about montefiore again for those who are like not very familiar with him uh or like his sort of dynasty um i actually didn't know this that he 
basically effectively sort of cross-married into the Rothschild family. So he married Judith Cohen, the daughter of Levy Barrett Cohen, uh, who was a Dutch, you know, British financier. Um, and her sister, Henriette, married Nathan Meyer Rothschild. And then they actually went into business together after that because Montefiore's firm acted as stockbrokers for the Rothschild company and got into many different uh, kind of industries and all kinds of stuff, including being among the founding consortium of the Alliance Insur- the Alliance Assurance Company, which I think was, I don't know if that was like the first kind of modern, you know, we're, we're in sus insurance territory, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. th- this is a, a seminal company um, in the history of like the sus insurance industry on top of that. So, and of course the, the Rothschilds, I think later when actual Zionism gets going, the Rothschild could also provide like millions of dollars basically to sort of fund these initial settlements, um, you know, back in Palestine. So just wanted to toss that in there. 